Okay, good evening, everybody. I'm calling this meeting to order. Uh, this is an adjourned regular planning commission meeting uh, that was continued back from Monday, November 13th. Uh, and we'll start with the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, next we'll have a roll call of the Planning Commission. Commissioner Chapman. Here. Commissioner Fullerton. Here. Commissioner Miller. Here. Vice Chair Maynard. Here. Chair Smith. Here. Okay, and our next item is public forum. This is an opportunity for members of the public to speak on an item that is not on tonight's agenda. Uh, do we have any um, requests to speak for public forum? I do not have any speaker slips for this item. If there's any members of the public on Zoom that wish to speak, please raise your hand and I'll call on you momentarily. I have no hands raised. Okay, we will close the public forum. Let's see, uh, do we have any amendments or adjustments to tonight's agenda? Madam Chair, we have none. Thank you. Okay, uh, first I want to acknowledge that the administrative agenda items, uh, which were A1 and A2, uh, were addressed at uh, the Monday evening meeting of November 13th. And so next we'll turn to the three public hearings, which on uh, the agenda are B1, B2 and B3. These were all continued uh, from the Monday, November 13th meeting. And so before we begin the public hearings, uh, our city staff member, Ann Wells, is gonna walk us through a few procedural items. All right, thank you, uh, commissioners. Uh, tonight, you've probably figured it out, we have three uh, separate hearings uh, items B1 through B3, and the first item, B1, involves adoption of a, a California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA, addendum um, for the city's 2023 to 2031 housing element update, as well as decisions concerning 449 and 469 Kellogg Way. And the second hearing item, B2, recommends adoption of the proposed housing element revisions. And then the third agenda item, B3, addresses uh, related general plan and Title 17 amendments for a number of properties in the housing element sites inventory, inventory including um, rezones of the properties, um, which the housing element contemplates. And because uh, the properties are located throughout the city, two of our planning commissioners, Chair Smith and uh, Vice Chair Maynard, have a conflict of interest under the Political Reform Act. And so they'll have to recuse themselves from certain housing element um, actions later tonight. And just for reference, the Political Reform Act allows for housing element decisions to be segmented or separated out so that the government officials with the conflict can avoid participation in the parts where they, where they have a conflict and then participates in the part where they don't have a conflict. And um, 
So to be a little more specific, Vice Chair Maynard has a conflict at 449 and 469 Kellogg, which is one of the housing element sites. And staff was able to segment out decisions involving um, 449 and 469 Kellogg Way in order for Chair Maynard um, or Vice Chair Maynard to uh, still participate in the items on which she doesn't have a conflict. And the first public hearing involving um, CEQA and the Kellogg property was agendized separately to allow um, um, Vice Chair Maynard to recuse herself. And the next two public hearings involve the adoption of the housing element and the general plan and Title 17 amendments with no action on 449 and 469 Kellogg. So then um, Vice Chair Maynard is able to participate. And so for the, the second recusal, Chair Smith has a conflict on 7264 Kyrial. And because of that timing, uh, this, uh, because of the timing that the conflict arose for Chair Smith, the agenda had been published and staff was not able to segment out that property to allow Chair Smith to participate in some of the um, tonight's hearings. So therefore, Chair Smith will recuse herself from all of the actions tonight. And uh, the third, the third uh, thing that I wanted to highlight was that um, we need a little bit of a roadmap for, for how these hearings will run tonight. So um, public hearing one covers the adoption of the CEQA addendum and then decisions respecting 449 and 469 Kellogg. And because the chair will be recusing herself from all of the items tonight, normally the vice chair takes over and then runs the meeting However, because the vice chair is conflicted out on the first public hearing, Commissioner Fullerton will preside over the public hearing. Um, as with all the public hearings, staff will give a presentation, and then the planning commissioners will be able to ask questions. Um, and then we'll take public comment, and then the planning commissioners will discuss and deliberate and entertain a motion, and you'll, you'll hear this um, throughout the night, and we'll be guiding you. Um, for public hearings two and three that involve the adoption of the housing element, which is B2, and then B3, all the implementing general plan and Title 17 amendments and associated rezones, um, they, they do not have any actions related to 449 and 469 Kellogg. So Chair Maynard will return and preside over the second and third public hearings since she's not conflicted on the, on the items. Uh, so now we'll uh, return to allow Chair Smith to make her recusal statement, and then uh, we'll also hear the recusal statement from Vice Chair Maynard, and then the clerk can read into the record the first public hearing. Thank you, Ms. Wells, uh, and thanks to city staff for um, helping us understand all those things, um, and also to my fellow commissioners uh, for helping with this meeting this evening. Uh, so I have a potential conflict of interest under the Political Reform Act, and it relates to the property at 7264 Calle Real, uh, and that is a site that's on the housing sites inventory list. Um, and given the proximity of that site um, to, a, to a property in which I uh, now have a real property interest, um, as a result, I am recusing myself from all the ho housing element items this evening uh, and will not participate in any of the public hearings tonight. Uh, before I recuse myself for item B1, um, I will take us into a disclosure of ex parte communications for items B1 through B3. 
Um, I'm going to ask the commission if you have any have had any conversations with anybody about the properties contemplated in the housing element outside of the public hearings, and if you've learned anything that is not in the public record. Um, and what I'd like to do is ask uh, Clerk Collier um, to do a roll call um, to initiate the ex parte communications. Commissioner Chapman. Um, so the only uh, ex parte communication was uh, earlier this year, I had received a presentation from um, someone as a part of the, um, sorry, I, I'm forgetting the name of the site. Um, one, one, one. Uh, let's circle back to Sorry, Commissioner okay. Chapman. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> let's go to the next one. Commissioner Fullerton. I have no ex parte communications. Commissioner Miller. <clears throat> I have one ex parte communication to um, disclose, and that is that I, um, I believe it was yesterday, I spoke on the phone with um, Ken Acker. He had called me and requested that I call him back, which I did, and um, I didn't learn anything that isn't already in the public record. Commissioner Chapman. Thank you. Um, sorry, I, the name of the, uh, it's the site known as the Yardie site, um, and I had yeah, received a presentation, and um, I don't think there was anything uh, that isn't, in the public information. Thank you. Okay, uh, so I will go next. Um, I did have two ex parte communications since the last time that I reported ex parte communications on, this, on the items being discussed tonight. Uh, those two included a phone call with Mr. Alker of the Kenwood Village's property and a, also an additional phone call um, also this week with Mr. McKillian of the Dara Road Project. Um, in both of those conversations, uh, they reiterated things that were in their public comment letters. And so everything that I learned during those two phone calls is also a part of the public record. Um, and now with that, I will go ahead and do my recusal. Um, I have a potential conflict of interest during, um, under the Political Reform Act relating to the sites of 449 and 469 Kellogg Way, given the proximity of my home to this site. Therefore, I will recuse myself from any actions related to the site, including the items that are part of the present public hearing of item B1. Uh, Commissioner Fullerton will preside over this public hearing, um, and I will now leave the room. Um, so, Ms. Collier, can you please read um, hearing number one into the record? Item B1, Housing Element 2023-2031, Amendments California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, Addendum and Resolutions to Add 449 and 469 Kellogg Way to Housing Element 2023-2031, Subprogram H 
E2.1A and the Technical Appendix Residential Sites Inventory to amend the General Plan and Title 17 Zoning of the Goleta Municipal Code to facilitate high-density residential housing at 449 and 469 Kellogg Way, case numbers 21-0002-GPA and 23-0004-ORD. Okay, thank you, Ms. Collier. Uh, Ms. Wells, can you please give your presentation? Sure. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Fullerton, and uh, good evening. And um, to the commissioners and also to the members of the public that are in the audience and online, um, welcome to this continued public hearing. It was continued from Monday night um, to consider all the related items for the readoption of the housing element 2023-2031, more specifically in this item, the CEQA addendum and the Kellogg sites that you'll hear more about. I'm Ann Wells, Advanced Planning Manager, and I'm joined by our Housing Element staff team, uh, Peter Imhoff and Andy Newkirk. I think you know them. And we also have our consultant team present um, via Zoom, and uh, Nicole West is with Rincon. They prepared the CEQA addendum. And then Veronica Tam and Jamie Powers um, Veronica, from the, our, our Housing Element consultant team and, um, and just to be clear, Veronica Tam, you've met her before at these meetings via Zoom. She's at another hearing, but she is um, available through her staff and also through us if we need to through email. Um, but, but Jamie has access to her, and Jamie is very familiar with, with the, the housing element as well. So she's here to assist us in, um, uh, for, throughout the three hearings tonight. So um, with that, I'm uh, gonna just jump into a quick summary of where we're at with the housing element. Um, you'll remember we initiated the housing element update, it was a couple years ago now. And we have since hosted many public meetings, um, hearings, study sessions, stakeholder meetings, lots of outreach. And then we released a draft housing element to the state Housing and Community Development Department, or HCD. That will just be an acronym that we'll use tonight. Um, and then, and for public review. And then we um, received the state's comments in a letter. Um, we, and we received state, state input, public input. We modified the draft, and we presented it back to the Planning Commission and the City Council, and um, that housing element was adopted um, in January of this year. And so we've been since implementing our housing element as we should, and that has actually been a breath of fresh air to have an updated housing element for us to use internally. Because really City Hall and the structure and the staffing has changed since our last housing element was adopted. So we are better positioned to implement that housing element. Uh, so that's, that's the good part that we adopted in January. We submitted it as required to HCD for their review and they um, gave us another comment letter and that was dated March 20th 2023, and um, there were some, you know, challenging comments, and the, the big one were the, um, the site's inventory and the need to rezone. And so uh, we reviewed the rezones with you, with the city council at a joint meeting, and with the public back in July. And then based on the feedback that we received, uh, we revised the housing elements, posted online, 
and we submitted it to the state HCD for their review, and they did give us a draft and compliance letter, meaning they're ready to issue that certification letter. And if you remember from the adoption proceedings, that's super important because it lets us retain our land use authority it, and um, gives us access to grants and a whole bunch of other stuff that, that we won't go into. But it's super important, and the fact that we got that drafting compliance letter is, is really critical. So um, we won't get official certification until after we adopt these revisions that they're expecting and also um, you know, take necessary action on the, the rezoning item, which is in, um, well, B1 and B3 tonight, and then take it to city council. And so we're looking forward to, at some point, getting that certification blessing before February 15th, which is the deadline. So kind of dialing it back to this item, um, is it's about adoption of the CEQA addendum. And our last housing element, we didn't change what, we, what we'll call build out. And Nicole West, the consultant, is going to explain that. Um, it, it didn't change our original general plan EIR. Um, but but changing the zoning and a few other things that we're doing with these revisions that HCD has requested um, has an effect on build-out. So that's why we prepared an addendum. Addendum doesn't need to be circulated under state law. And also, most importantly, the addendum doesn't take action on the item. Um, it, it just is um, evaluating the environmental analysis, and there's important findings that you make in the, in the resolution that's attached to your staff report. Um, and we'll walk you through all that, too. So, we already talked about 449 and 469 Kellogg, and that that's included in this presentation. So you'll, we kind of segmented the presentation in, into two um, pieces with the, the CEQA addendum and then the Kellogg site. And um, that it al as always important to flag that written public comments that are received are logged, and then they are posted online with the packet. And then we also post them separately on the project webpage um, that's under the Planning and Environmental Review Department site. And tonight we have last checked was 12 um, written public comments in total. And most of the commenters expressed concern with the rezoning. Oh, I, want, I should flag. We didn't um, separate out the comments by hearing item. We just took all the comment letters and put them for all three items because some of the comments were blended and it made more sense to make sure that the comments had the right context for each of the three hearing items. So um, I'll repeat this for each for the other two hearings. Um, but most of the commenters expressed concern with the rezoning and, um, and then related impacts to the community. And then another letter expressed confusion about the Kenwood site, and we'll be discussing that further um, in, in, a present, in other presentations this evening. And then we also received a letter from another state agency that just basically acknowledged receipt of the housing element that we transmitted, or the notice. And then, um, yeah, and, and I, w I was asked um, about the Planning Commission and whether or not how they get comments. And um, so I just thought for the public to share that when we post the public comments received, the written public comments, they go on our website, and then they're also transmitted from the clerk to the Planning Commission. So they get them right away. And if they're late received 
comments, then we um, maybe the commissioners don't have a chance to read everything, but we do. And so we'll, we'll keep you informed. And then there's also public comment at the podium. So I just wanted to clarify that before we hopped into our meeting. And then one last note, uh, we're going to ask for a small amendment to the Planning Commission resolution so that you'll have to, we'll help you at the end. We won't let you forget. Um, there was a unnecessary reference to conservation element in section two, finding A in recommendation C of your staff report. So it'll be an easy, you know, if, if it gets to the point for, of um, the recommendation, then we'll ask you to throw in this cleanup um, change. So if we can just go to the next slide. So the, the format is our usual format with the, uh, the presentation that you're receiving now and then receive your questions and then we'll go public comment and then deliberation and then we'll have you, you can take action on that recommendation. And the topics that, um, that we'll be covering tonight, just a little background, I think I, I already kind of mentioned that what we're doing here tonight is a state requirement with the, the housing element and the revisions. It's also a requirement to consider CEQA. Our last housing element, we used an exemption because we didn't change build out. This one did include changes to our land use plan map, for example. And so we're, we prepared that addendum. And then the, um, we're gonna talk about the CEQA analysis and the, the scope of the analysis and then we're gonna spend a little time uh, Nicole West from Rincon will talk about the methodology, and so you can have a better understanding of that. And then we'll shift over to 449 and 469 Kellogg Way, and I, I, I won't go into we'll, we'll get into that later. Um, so that, that's kind of it on the presentation topics. For the CEQA analysis, uh, in order to comply with the requirements of CEQA and provide for environmental clearance for the housing element 2023-2031 amendments, uh, we have to, we prepared that addendum. And we it was an addendum to the general plan, coastal land use plan, final EIR um, from 2006. And um, the next slides will just give you an overview of that process and the addendum uh, for the housing element amendments. So again, the, the, the EIR was certified in 2006 and then um, um, it was a, a, a programmatic EIR, and then the, we, it evaluated impacts on uh, growth, uh, residential and non-residential, and then um, it presented mitigation for the impacts. And, and the mitigation for the impacts that you'll see in all EIRs, it, it built on policies that are already in the general plan. Like if there's impacts from something to creeks, then there's creek mitigations to protect creeks. So it was, in a sense, self-mitigating from that perspective. And then since we adopted the general plan and the, the EIR, um, it has been amended 27 times. And um, there were some addenda and, um, and a supplemental EIR in 2009 when there were a bunch of changes made to the general plan. Uh, so we put all those bundled together, all of, all of the changes, all of the addenda and the supplemental EIR, would you still call that the general plan EIR um, for practical purposes. 
And then just a, a briefing on the housing element. We have to update it every eight years. That's state law. And it's referred to as, you know, this, um, as cycles. So we're in cycle six right now. And that's that 2023-2031 time period that we keep talking about. And um, that our housing element was adopted on January 17th. You already told you that. We said it was exempt from CEQA. And then we got that letter from HCD. And, and now we're in the process of, of concluding um, the revisions that the state has asked us to make. And so I'm going to um, transition over to Nicole West from Rincon so she can get into kind of the meat of the, the CEQA approach and um, how that was how that analyzed the effects of our revisions to the housing element. Nicole, just give us a second so you can get unmuted. I think we might have to unmute on our end. Okay, I think you're, you wanna give a test on this? Is it working? Yes, it is now. Perfect. Okay. okay, so the CEQA guidelines includes criteria for determining the appropriate additional environmental documentation, if any, um, that should be completed when a project has a previously certified EIR. And um, as Anne explained, there was um, an EIR certified for the original general plan. The CEQA guideline states that an addendum to a previously certified EIR is the appropriate CEQA documentation if a project would not result in new or substantially greater environmental impacts or require new mitigation beyond that analyzed in the previously certified EIR. So the city prepared an addendum for the housing element amendments, which compared the impacts of the housing element amendments to those analyzed in the previously certified EIR. Next slide. The addendum considered changes that would result from the housing element amendments. This included rezoning of the 12 sites on um, this slide. And this rezoning serves as the foundation of the project description that required the environmental analysis. Next slide. This map shows the housing inventory sites as well as the rezone sites that were considered in the addendum. Next slide. The housing element amendments also included several other changes that were evaluated in the addendum. These include an increased density in the community commercial um, from 12 to 20 units per acre. Uh, included streamlined processing for affordable housing and smaller mixed-use housing projects. There are height changes in several residential zones and in the coastal zone to allow an increase from 25 to 35 feet and in the commercial old town to allow a height increase from 30 to, uh, from 30 to 35 feet. Um, there is a revised lot coverage methodology and standard in the high density residential from 40 to 50% and emergency shelters um, as a permitted use in the office and institutional districts. The addendum included an analysis of each of the environmental checklist questions contained in the Appendix G of the CEQA guidelines. 
The physical environmental changes that were considered in the analysis included increased building heights, increased lot coverage, and changes in the residential units and associated population that could occur as a result of the housing element amendments. And it compared that to what was analyzed in the final EIR for the general plan. The analysis considered the general plan policies that would lessen environmental impacts and considered if additional mitigation would be needed beyond that identified in the previously certified EIR. The housing element amendments in and of themselves does not include a specific project involving a new housing development, but rather it puts forth goals and policies that support housing efforts in the city consistent with the overall vision of the general plan. Because the project specific details of any future development is not known at this time, a project level analysis is not feasible. However, the addendum considered environmental impacts that could occur from future development facilitated by the housing element amendments. Each future individual development project facilitated by the housing element amendments would be required to undergo um, city design review and project level CEQA review at the time any, any individual projects are proposed. Next slide. So the addendum determined that the amendments would not result in new or greater impacts or require new mitigation beyond those analyzed in the previously certified EIR for the general plan, and therefore no additional environmental compliance beyond the addendum is required. So I'm going to hand it back over to Anne. We'll switch gears over to um, the 449 and 469 Kellogg Way sites. Um, I think you've We've already gathered that um, as we changed our housing element sites inventory to address the state HCD's comments, um, the inventory led, sorry, when we, we addressed HCD's comments in their March letter, um, not to add the sites, but actually their first comment was to remove a bunch of sites because what they, like of constraints that they perceived on the sites um, or didn't fit their, their criteria. And so when we, when we did that, it created a shortfall. And that was what we um, addressed in July in those Planning Commission City Council study sessions, three of them, um, here at the Council Chambers. So we brought to you rezones and received feedback. And then we, we took that feedback from the sessions and then we rewrote uh, Housing Element Subpolicy HE 2.1A. And um, that included the land use designation changes in the general plan on the general plan map, and then also um, rezoning in Title 17. And so more specifically, just this item is just on Kellogg. So the 449 Kellogg Way site um, would change from business park or BP to high density residential or RH, and then 469 is um, currently planned residential or RP, and that would switch to RH. And so if you look at the, the slide, you, you can see a photo on the left, and then um, below the photo you can see an aerial, and then um, the, two, um, the two addresses, like the tan address, and then versus the, um, the, the purple address. So I think uh, what to flag on that is that the existing uses are outdoor storage, and, um, and in summary, on the Kellogg 449 Kellogg site, 
the current unit count um, that would be allowed at that site is zero, and the rezone would allow us to count 25 units. And then the 469 site, um, you could get, because of the, the um, planned residential um, zoning on that site, um, you could get 25 units, but at RH, you can get 60 units. Um, so that's a good adjustment on that on those Kellogg Way sites. And then um, there's some other changes that are needed for um, to be more specific about what what we have to change as part of this resolution attached to that is an ordinance um, that the plant the city council will consider. And so there's really um, like three things that we're changing, three categories of things. We have to change the technical appendix to include the site in the inventory. And then we have to change the general plan, land use plan map figure uh, 2-1 uh, for that for those changes to the to get that RH designation. And then in Title 17, we we have to clarify that these the site um, these two sites have a minimum density of 20 units per acre. That will allow HCD to uh, that's what they've agreed upon as that will count towards our lower income regional housing need allocation. Um, and then that last thing is a, is part of that the first or the the Title 17 amendment, and that's just changing the land or the the zoning map. And all of that is in the in your packet as part of that resolution. Oh, let's see where are we next? And that that really just gets us right to the Planning Commission recommendation. And you'll see on the screen there's three, and um, so the first one is for the CEQA addendum. As you have to take action on CEQA first before you can take action on the other items. And then um, for item B, it, that's the resolution that is is changing the housing element and then and the, and the technical appendix. And then the, the last one is for the is for the uh, implementing zoning and um, uh, general plan amendments. That's the ordinance. And so I um, and I I wanted to say it again that we need to remove that unnecessary reference to the conservation element that's in section two finding a of your reso big page one hundred three so if we if we um, get to it then we can um, clarify that in the in the resolution but we can remind you after we take planning commission questions and then public comment um, that. That concludes the staff presentation. Okay, thank you, Ms. Wells. Um, do we have any planning commission questions? <clears throat> uh, I just wanted to um, uh, just clarify a couple of things. The first thing I want to clarify is that the reason that we are um, seg segmenting out uh, for the, the addresses uh, which are, what are the addresses? 469, 469, 449, and 469 Kellogg Way is because um, we knew, um, or staff knew, ahead of time that um, uh, Vice Chair Maynard would have a, a conflict 
And so they were able to segment out this particular, these particular properties so that she wouldn't be, um, um, you know, having to recuse herself on the whole thing. And I just want to clarify, is that um, a correct fact first? Yes. Okay, thank you. And uh, my next question is also uh, to clarify that um, the um, addendums and amendments that you're doing for CEQA does not, um, um, will not play into or will not prohibit or preclude any other CEQA or EIR uh, matters that may take place um, or that will take place once each of the individual um, sites are uh, going through their process of development and, and that sort of thing. So the, uh, is it true then that the, the amendments and the addendums for the CEQA tonight are just to fulfill the um, HCD and the requirements under the housing element. Well said, Commissioner. And uh, it's all of this work tonight is just to change, basically change a map or two maps, one in the general plan and one in, um, t in the zoning. So a, a few other little details, right? But, but in general, it's just to change a map. In order for a project to come in and get processed, they have to go through the usual process for that, um, which they could come in now with their existing zoning, um, but they would just be coming in with a different project in the in the future. So that they will have to go through environmental review on that. Okay, good. Thank you. I just wanted to uh, simplify and uh, clarify that. So thank you, Commissioner Chapman. Thank you. Um, I had a question about the. Um, EIR addendum itself. Um, so one of the reasons uh, given that there wasn't a substantial impact was that the increased population from anticipated from the rezones was significantly less than the increase in population uh, stated in the original EIR. Um, I understand that that was a prediction and it's you know impossible to say but uh, do you have any idea of the reason why that, that change in population is, is much less than anticipated? We use the, um, the census data, and then we use forecasts on that. We don't do our own forecasts, so we, we source our data on that. OK. Um, and then I had a, a question about um, about 449 and 469 Kellogg um, specifically. Um, do those parcels have different owners or? Um, Commissioner Chapman, it's understanding that there's a single owner and we that we've spoken to on about those two sites. Okay, um, so yeah, one of the things I noticed in the, um, the categories uh, that they're considered separately um, as far as the uh, low-income and moderate-income units. And the one smaller one uh, counted towards zero lower-income units. Do you, do you know why that is? Is it because of the 
size of the parcel? Uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, Commissioner Chapman, I'll put the slide up again. Um, we are gonna count, um, the, the numbers there on the slide um, show what we would count under existing conditions in that second to last line, and then in the last line would be under proposed zoning. So with proposed zoning to RH, we would count both towards lower income, um, but uh, the under existing zoning, uh, 449 is business park, so we didn't count any, and then um, 469 is planned residential, and it doesn't have the adequate density to be counted towards lower income. And so you can, you can see on the slide that all the unit counts are allowed to be counted towards the regional housing need allocation. I see. I think I, I misunderstood the slide a little bit, so thank you. Do we have any, any other questions? Any other questions? Okay. Um, then we did take public comment on Monday, but we'll now um, continue to take our public comment. So do we have any um, comments, anyone who wants to comment on this item for B1? I do have two speaker slips. If there's anyone joining us via Zoom that wishes to speak on this item, please raise your hand and I'll call on you momentarily. First public speaker is April Reed, followed by Claire Macon. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, I'm a little angry, so I'm gonna try to calm down. Um, two days ago, I stood here and asked what was going on, um, what was the definition of something like separate action. Um, I wasn't clear, and no one explained this to me until tonight. So I totally confused about what I'm even supposed to talk about or argue about or what arguments to make. Um, and I'll just lay it all on the table. A couple years ago, um, I asked about uh, the housing element because I had moved back to town and I didn't really know what it was about. And I was told by someone, a staff member, and I will not name that person, um, who told me that the city council was new and basically slow development. Uh, not pro-development like the council that got voted out. And I was told that there was no way that they would build um, uh, property on Kenwood Village. And so I relied on that. And there were years I didn't show up for these meetings, which I would have if uh, I had any inkling whatsoever that this was gonna happen. So um, today you explained all this stuff to me, but now I don't know how to respond because this is the first time anyone has explained this to me. And I asked you guys two days ago, somebody who could explain it to me and nobody did. So I still feel deceived even further. I don't really know what I'm supposed to say or what the true issues are. I got a little bit of an idea from here. Um, I am opposed to the height elements uh, increase. I think that's from the state. So I don't really know if that's even anything you can uh, comprehend. This is the first time I found out that this was something that was from the 2006 sequel plan. Um, I thought that this was um, something based on the environmental plan from Kenwood Village specifically. So 
I, I was thoroughly confused. I'm sorry, I realize um, I'm not very educated in these issues like you guys are, and I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Um, regarding issues in general, um, there are butterflies, monarch butterflies on the property, which were not noted back when the original EIR came in. So I would object to um, just an, an EIR going through or an addendum going through without um, those specific issues being checked into. And I know this is more of a general thing, I think, than a specific item. Um, there are also multiple traffic uh, accidents on this uh, Cali Real, which is near Kenwood Village. Um, I would be more prepared if I knew what I was talking about before five minutes ago. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to take it out on all of you, but I'm just kind of angry in general, so I'm sorry. Um, I don't know even what streamlining is. Nobody's explained to me and I've asked what streamlining is. I don't know what that means, what it includes, what it takes away. So that's the best I can do. Okay. Thank you. Um, do we have any more speakers? Galair Mako. Hi, Galeray Macon. Um, had, I'm a land use agent for the property owner at 449 and 469. A uh, couple things. One, um, they were hoping that they can get the uh, RH overlay instead of the rezone, similar to what Yardi is getting, just so they can continue their um, outdoor storage use and not become legal non-conforming while they're working on their plans to do the residential project. Um, specifically for the smaller parcel, because that one's zoned um, business park currently, and it would be consistent. Um, the second comment is um, the property uh, lies along old San Jose Creek, and I was just curious if the staff report or any documentation addresses that constraint to the development because if we had a 100-foot setback from that creek, it would really limit um, a project on that site. So I just don't know if that's being considered or part of the discussion, but I just wanted to bring it to the record. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Do we have another speaker? I have no more speaker slips for this item. If there's any members joining us via Zoom that wish to speak, please raise your hand and I'll call on you momentarily. I have no hands raised. Okay, thank you. So do we have any further commission questions for staff? Commissioner Chapman? Um, before we resume, I, I think there might have been somebody who wanted to speak but maybe didn't turn in a speaker slip. I, I seen someone raise their hand earlier. I'm just double checking. James Rolfe wishes to speak on this item as well. Thank you. 
Um, I'm a tenant of this property, and I have two storage units, and I occupy one of the buildings, and I'm just wondering about how it came to be designated as underutilized because there are 196 units on this property, and it's more packed with, with units than any parking lot in Goleta, and I'm just seeing that all these units would have to be relocated somehow, and there are ordinances against putting these things on the street, and there are nothing else available, and I just feel like in accepting this as a, a redevelopment project that it's going to create other problems, and you'll just be changing one problem for another. So I just don't really understand it. I'm trying to find a place to relocate to, and there's nothing available. So if you were to have like a 40-foot RV or something like that, and you were to want to find a place for it, you might have to go to Santa Paula or Santa Maria to find a place to park it because there's nothing available. And there are no commercial units that are small, like about 1,000 square feet for people like myself who run a nonprofit organization who are trying to find space to do what they do. And so I would, I just don't understand how this property is being considered as being underutilized. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any other speakers? I have no more speaker slips. If there's anyone on Zoom, please raise your hand. Still no hands raised. Okay, thank you. So do we have any more questions for staff? Commissioner Fullerton, if, if you wouldn't mind, I thought to respond to a couple of the okay, questions. sure. Um, I wanted to flag that the comment about Kellogg Way, um, we didn't, weren't aware of this request. Um, but if we did use the Yardie type overlay, uh, we would not be able to count the units towards lower income. So that would have an effect there. And then the, there's, you know, we have, I think, 12 creeks that bisect our city. And, um, and so we have a track record of, of construction honoring um, creek setbacks. And, and we also are, you know, changing heights. So there's some flexibility there with the, with the housing. But I just wanted to flag that uh, for you. And then there was a comment about streamlining. And um, it's a good comment as far as what is streamlining. And if you look in um, the housing element revisions that are online and in your packet, there's um, a whole program that's added, or it's a sub-program. It's HE, um, HE 2.1i. And that streamlining in, in that context expands the objective design standards that are in Title 17 um, to other uh, projects. Like if you're 100% affordable, you can use objective design standards. Um, there's also um, an exemption for small, uh, smaller mixed-use housing projects um, from a, a development plan in, in certain zone districts. And then there's amendments to the conservation element um, um, like just little details that, that simplify, that streamline the process for, um, in particular, these affordable housing on these, these rezone sites. Okay, thank you, Ms. Wells. And now do we have any other questions? Commissioner Chapman. 
I do have a question about the, the RH overlay question. So with, with the current staff recommendation, what would be the, the consequence uh, as far as the existing use? Uh, Commissioner Chapman, so, um, and this gets to actually one of the other comments too, um, a, a good portion of that site is already zoned residential. So outdoor storage isn't allowed, isn't allowed like if a, new, if a new proposal came in, it would not be allowed to go there. So it is already non-conforming. So the vast majority of the site is non-conforming. So the idea of like that overlay with, and we'll, we can get more into this with the ERD site at a subsequent hearing, um, is because there's an active conforming use on the site. And there was a concern about creating, established, like moving it to a non-conforming status. Where here, the vast majority of the site already is non-conforming. So we don't see it as the same type of scenario. Okay, so that, that smaller parcel would only be affected if there was a change of use that wasn't to housing. Um, I'm not, so um, I'd want to look at the code even whether outdoor storage is allowed in BP as a standalone use. So it's, um, so without, it's easy to say residential outdoor storage is not allowed okay. to use. But even the, the BP site, it's not clear, but again, but if, if it was allowed now, then yes, it would be creating a non-conforming use. But our, our zoning code also provides provisions for non-conforming uses that are fairly flexible because with the adoption of Title 17, we knew we were creating a lot of non-conformities. So we didn't want to be too punitive with that change. So there's still some, you can still operate, certainly. Um, and there are some limitations on alterations to your use, but you can still operate. Okay, so so potentially for most or all of the site, this would be changing it. Its current use would be non-conforming, and then it would be non-conforming with the, the change zoning as well. So it wouldn't really even make a difference day to day? I'm not sure if I would want to go that far, okay. Commissioner Chapman. Just the, I think that the property owner may feel differently on that. But for at least a large majority of the site, the status of the use would not change. Okay. Okay. So I looks like we don't have any more questions. So um, I will now close the public hearing so that the commission can deliberate and entertain a motion. Um, do we have anyone that would like to start with your thoughts? Commissioner Miller? Uh, being that, um, uh, number one, that uh, we do want to add the two Kellogg properties, uh, 449 and 469, into the housing element, that's certainly um, uh, has my support and the changes for the CEQA uh, or the addendums that will be um, added into um, the housing element as well also uh, don't seem to um, um, cause any problems right at this moment so um, I'm in support of that as well so um, I can, um, once we hear from both of you, then um, I'd be ready to make a motion. Commissioner Chapman? Um, yeah, I, I think the uh, CQA addendum makes sense. Um, it, it is a lot of work, <laughs> I could tell, uh, to, to 
we should make make these changes. Um, but it, it it is good to review the environmental impact. Um, and I think it I think it's an interesting demonstration of of uh, residential impact compared to sort of the proposed uses. It, it does seem clear that it's it's a wash, um, if not sometimes beneficial, uh, environmentally speaking. Um, as far as the two sites in question, I, I do think the zoning makes sense, um, considering kind of the criteria that we talked about during the study sessions, um, the proximity to the services of Old Town, um, and even the uh, eventual extension of Equel um, should, should kind of help access and hopefully minimize the um, a traffic impact, which, which would be analyzed at any project proposal uh, of an eventual project that, that may be here. Other than that, I, I don't have any other comments. Okay, and I, I agree with both commissioners' statements. I I feel that the these sites are it's a good location for housing, and I do understand that there are people using that site right now, and there's an issue with parking campers, and I think it's something the city has to continue to look at to figure out what other options there could be, but. But the sites themselves do lend themselves to housing. Um, I think the CEQA change was, it makes sense. I mean, I know the full CEQA review is going to happen when we get actual projects. And I think that's what we have to keep coming back to is that we are not making any decisions on any projects right now. It's we're making changes to proposing changes to add these to the housing element and rezone. Um, so that when there are projects that come, they will get the full review. And I think because we have the house, as Ms. Wells said, because we have a certified housing element, that gives us that control at that time to be able to really look at all the impacts and the, you know, the, the animals, the environmental, the traffic, all that will be reviewed when there is an actual project. So I think that's what's really important um, to remember. So I do also support all these items. So with that, um, do we have anyone? Commissioner Fullerton, if, mm -hmm. you, if you don't mind, um, whoever the maker of the motion is, um, consider that in uh, there's, there's three resolutions that are before you this evening. The third one, if you look at the staff report recommendation, it's C. Um, that one is the one that we're asking that you um, Add an am amendment to remove reference to conservation to the conservation element in the resolution section to finding A. And, and uh, to sorry, Ryan Steger with the uh, city attorney's office, um, and to ensure we have a clear record here, given there are three resolutions, uh, my legal advice would be to, to take them one at a time. So to the motion to do A second vote, then B, and then C, and then we can clarify that uh, correction on C. Okay, thanks. So do we have a motion for item A? Um, I will move that we um, adopt resolution number 23- entitled a resolution of the Planning Commission of the City of Goleta, California, recommending to the City Council to make findings pursuant to Public Resources Code Section 21166 and to adopt the housing element 2023-2031 uh, amendments, addendum to the general plan slash coastal land use plan, final environmental impact report. 
uh, paren uh, state clearinghouse number 2005031151, close paren. Do you have a second? I'll second. Okay. Can we get a roll call vote, please? Commissioner Chapman? Aye. Commissioner Fullerton? Aye. Commissioner Miller? Aye. Okay, motion passed. Um, so now we have item B. Do we have anyone that would like to make a motion? Uh, I'll make a motion to adopt resolution number 23, entitled A Resolution of the Planning Commission of the City of Goleta, California, recommending that 449 and 469 Kellogg Way be added to housing element 2023 through 2031, subprogram HE 2.1A, in the technical appendix, residential sites inventory, case number 21-0002-GPA. Do we have a second? I second. Can we get a roll call vote, please? Commissioner Chapman? Aye. Commissioner Fullerton? Aye. Commissioner Miller? Aye. Okay, motion approved. And now we have item C. Does anyone want to make a motion? I will move to adopt resolution number 23 entitled A Resolution of the Planning Commission of the City of Goleta, California recommending to the City Council adoption of amendments to the general plan and adoption of an ordinance to amend Title 17 of the Goleta Municipal Code to facilitate, facilitate high-density residential development at 449 Kellogg Way. Uh, APN 071-130-039 and 469 Kellogg Way, APN 071-130-010, case numbers uh, 21-002-GPA and 23-004-ORD. Those last two had three zeros? And, and further to remove the reference to converse, converse, excuse me, conservation, con remove the reference to conservation element in resolution section 2A. Is that clear enough? Can we get a second? I'll second. Okay, can we get a roll call vote? Commissioner Chapman? Aye. Commissioner Fullerton? Aye. Commissioner Miller? Aye. Okay, the motion passes. So um, I will now, oh, actually, so now we're going to move over and bring um, Vice Chair Maynard back.
We will now move on to item B2. Um, can well, we'll give the clerk a moment. Okay, can you go ahead and write, read B2 into the agenda? Item B2, Adoption of Housing Element 2023-2031 Amendments. Wonderful. Um, we will go into a presentation, but if anybody has not submitted a speaker slip, you can do that at any time, um, all the way up through the end of the public comment. Looks like we have some more folks submitting right now. Um, so I'm going to go and pass it to Ms. Wells to give a presentation on item B2. Good evening, Chair and Commissioners and members of the public. Um, welcome to this continued public hearing um, to consider the housing element 2023-2031 uh, revisions. I'm Advanced Planning Manager Ann Wells, and um, I'm accompanied by our staff team, Peter Imhoff and Andy Newkirk, and we also have our consultant team from um, Veronica Tam um, on, on Zoom. Um, so we have their technical cons um, assistance if we need it. Um, um, just to highlight, we initiated the housing element update that's required by state law two years ago, and we had um, a number of public meetings, many, many public meetings, stakeholder meetings, uh, planning commission meetings, city council meetings, workshops, hearings, um, and we uh, released a draft EIR, sorry, a draft housing element to the state for their review and public comment, and then we modified that draft, and um, we brought that uh, back to you and then to the city council, and then that was uh, adopted in January of 2023. Um, everything is posted online, so you can see kind of the history of how we got from there to here. Um, um, then, but then we, so now we've been implementing our housing element, which is great because our other housing element was, you know, eight years old. So it and city hall has changed, staffing has changed, resources are different, resources needs are different. So I think we've we did we did good by adopting that housing element in January, and. Um, but we, we still had to submit that adopted housing element to the state for the review. And they, they reviewed it and kicked it back and uh, made a number of comments um, that and requirements to remove some sites from our sites inventory to meet the regional housing needs allocation, or RENA, and, um, and then to add different types of sites in to our, our housing element. And th that letter was dated March 20th, 2023. It's also posted online. And, and it's also attached to your packet. So the, um, that got us going. With the one hand, we were implementing our new housing element. On the other hand, we were addressing the revisions that were needed for the state to, to get us um, certification. And we did that with you at, at three study sessions in July. And we took that feedback that we received, and then we submitted those revisions to the state for their review, and they gave us the draft and compliance letter. That's the thing we've been working for all this time. Um, because it lets us hold on to our uh, regulatory authority, our land use authority, and gets us grants and a bunch of other things. Um, and then the uh, as what's expected is if, if we go through the process tonight and then we go to city council with this package of amendments and related actions, uh, we will get an official HCD or Housing and Community Development Department certification letter on our housing element before the deadline of February 15th. So that's that's what we're aiming for. Um, some administrative things before we go into the material. Um, in, in, um, we summarize this in B1, in hearing item B1. We're taking all the comment letters and, and including them all for all three hearing items. So we received 12 um, when we last counted. 
and um, most of the commenters expressed concern with the rezoning and the related impacts to the community. And then another letter expressed confusion about the Kenwood site that we'll discuss further in the presentation. And then another letter was from a state agency um, that basically acknowledged receipt of the housing element notice. And um, and I'm gonna, I'll just flag that uh, written comments, when they're received, they're logged by the clerk, and then they, they're posted with the staff report, and then they're provided to the commissioners. And they're also posted on our housing element webpage. Uh, but written comments that are submitted late in the day, maybe they won't be read by you, because you're driving here and you're sitting down and you're starting the hearing. But we read them. And, um, and so we're, you know, we'll do what we can to accommodate anything that, that we're reading that you haven't read so that you're briefed on that. And, um, and people are public speaking tonight, so we'll, we'll have, the, of course, those. But I wanted to flag that. And so we'll just jump right into this public hearing agenda. It's the typical agenda format with the, this presentation and then your questions, and then we'll take public comment and then deliberation, and we'll take action on the recommendation. And for the topics to cover on the, um, this item, we're, we'll cover state requirements and the, the status of our housing element and the, the summary of revisions, next steps, some of those things I, I covered, so I'll kind of breeze through them. But that's what we'll be talking about this evening. All right, so the, the background, um, the housing element is the required part of a general plan. I think we all know that now. And there's extensive, extensive legal requirements. The other housing elements, um, other, other elements of the general plan, they, there are requirements, but not as extensive as the, the housing element. And, um, and they increase over time, like this, the, the requirements increase, as we've seen this round in particular. And we have to update them every year, or sorry, every eight years, and they're referred to as cycles, and we're in cycle six for the 2023-2031 time period. And the, again, the State Housing and Community Development Department, or HCD, has that oversight over our housing element and that's where they and that's where you're looking for that certification and that gives you all the protections that you need and it's time certain you have to you have to do it by a certain get it by a certain date so again we we adopted our housing element earlier this year we got the HCD letter and then we prepared um, responses and we met with you in July and then we submitted the the revisions to the state, and now we have our draft and compliance letter. So we're shooting for that next uh, goalpost, which is finalizing these revisions. So we'll switch over to um, getting into the content of the revisions. And I know people are really focused on the zoning changes and the adding sites to the inventory, but there's other changes too that are important. And I think, you know, not to be lost are. Why did we have to get to the zoning changes? Because we had to remove sites from our inventory. And, and that, that was kind of the, the, the ripple effect. Um, but there's really you know, some other really important changes for fair housing and other things that Andy Newkirk will walk you through. Thanks, Ann. And uh, thank you, Vice Chair and Planning Commissioner, Vice Chair Maynard and Planning Commissioners. So as Ann mentioned, we'll walk through we set up the staff report in this presentation to really go kind of point by point through the March 20th HCD letter and explain how we addressed each of those comments and what um, substantive changes those those ended up 
creating in our housing element programs. Um, so uh, that first item that they um, provided comments on was inventory of land, and you see the subcategories that we'll go through, but we won't belabor this slide. Um, so realistic capacity, that's how many units we can really see on the sites in our inventory. Um, so we, um, in particular, this is a question of mixed use development. Um, and so we added examples of regional projects that we think um, are similar to what we can see in the city. Um, but uh, we also looked to, to further bolster our assumptions. We looked at how we can better incentivize mixed use redevelopment, some of our you know, standards and procedures to, to, to foster more mixed use. Because we, we've seen some mixed use projects on vacant sites, but not as much on those underutilized sites. So what can we do? Um, so included in um, some of the sub-programs is a, a program to look at our open space standards for mixed use development. And one of the reasons there is if you have an existing structure, some of those, especially um, like private open space, may be challenging to build just because of like the, you know, the, the status of the ex existing structure. So we want to relook at how we're, how, what we're requiring for those projects. And we haven't identified the exact change, but that'll be something we'll, we'd look at in 2024. Um, we also looked at uh, included program, and we'll mention this a couple times, um, increasing the density in community commercials. So we have three zones where we allow mixed use. Um, the other two are office and institutional and um, commercial old town. Both of those other two zones allow 20 units per acre as part of mixed use, and community commercial is limited to 12 units per acre. So we wanted to even that out, and we see community commercial as having some sites that could really support mixed use in the future. So we think that that makes sense um, to foster that development. And then we also looked at increasing height standards in commercial Old Town. Um, our commercial zones have 35, except for intersection commercial is a little bit different, has 35 foot height standards and commercial Old Town has 30. And it, um, we've heard that it can create challenges getting that third floor, especially with a commercial first floor um, within 30 feet. So we wanted, uh, we felt like that change was warranted, especially as we look several, quite a few sites in our inventory are in commercial Old Town. So to foster that development, we think um, those were ways to, to better support our capacity assumptions in the, in the housing element. Um, we also looked a little more at environmental constraints. We got comments on that. So we, we looked at, and you know, one might say parcel shape isn't an environmental constraint, but we looked at some of the site constraints um, in our inventory um, and looked at con, um, site contamination, um, airport land use compatibility, which we had considered, but we added updated information. Um, and, and some sites were removed based on some of this analysis. A, a few sites were, um, particularly like odd-shaped lots where access might be a real challenge, um, or kind of developing because it's a really skinny parcel and it's not owned by the the same the uh, property owner of an adjacent parcel. So it would create challenges on their own. Um, and then we also um, added additional analysis on non-vacant sites to further justify um, the inclusion of those sites. And we did remove um, several sites with after this additional analysis. Some of that was based on the existing land use and trends that we've seen. Um, there were some sites that were removed because they had recent design review, conceptual reviews for non-housing projects. So we thought um, that made sense. And then one of the other big things we, we did was move um, those non-vacant sites, unless they were zoned for residential, um, move those non-vacant sites to moderate and above moderate. So not counting them towards lower income. Again, with, um, you know, based on our history, what we've seen, we thought that was um, a better justification for inclusion of those sites.
Um, so those changes that were described, particularly moving the um, non-residential sites out of lower income, um, created arena shortfall, um, and again, particularly for lower in the lower income category. Um, and, and so that really prompted us to look at land use designation changes, and that, that spurred the, those workshops in July because we felt like we needed to for better bolster our lower income um, as part of our ARENA accounting. And so subprogram 2.8 was essentially rewritten um, as a land use designation rezoning program. And just to be clear, for this item, um, you know, the Kellogg sites are not included, so what you see in the bulleted items is what's under consideration as part of the discussion here. Um, and we'll go into each one of these sites in an individual slide. So these are two sites, um, 60 Calusa Ave and 7020 Kyrael. They're actually they're, they're adjacent to each other at the intersection of Kyrael and Glen Annie. Um, and so uh, currently there's a market on one of those sites, the Kyrael address, and behind on Calusa is a vacant site. Um, they're both zoned intersection commercial right now. Um, and they're under the adopted housing element, they are counted towards arena because of state law. Um, intersection commercial typically does not allow residential, but under certain provisions of state law, a project could come in. But with our rezoning, um, they could come in under our rules and our regulations. And so you would see a, um, a jump in the number of units counted as part of those, those sites. Um, with a change on the Kyrial site to community commercial, which would allow the existing use to continue, but adding residential units on some excess land there and then on the Calusa site to high-density residential. Um, next is the Kenwood site, um, 7264 Kenwood, um, referred to as Kenwood Village as there is a, a previous or a, you know, a pending project there. Um, so that's kind of how we, we refer to it through this process. Um, it, is, it is vacant right now, and it is split zone between agriculture and residential. So it is in our inventory because of the, the single-family residential portion counted as above moderate. And um, the proposed change is to allow um, high-density residential but limited to 190 units. So the developed portion of the site would need to be um, at a density um, uh, uh, of 20 to 30 units per acre. So the min and max density allowed um, the unit count would be 126 to 190 units on that portion that's developed. Next up, and these are these next two slides are really um, companion slides. Um, at 7190 Hollister and the parcels adjacent to 7190 Hollister, they're under the similar ownership. Um, the first site here, um, the frontage on Hollister is CG, and then there's this back portion that's undeveloped at RM, and the proposed change is to make it all RH. And so there would be a fairly significant increase in the number of units, although we do have counted units in our adopted housing element on this site. And then the two parcels to the east of 7190, they're both fully vacant um, and also split zone CG and RM. So they're both in our existing adopted inventory as well, but this change would increase the development potential on those sites um, as it, it would be fully zoned as, or land use designation zoning of RH. Um, next site is 625 Dara Road. Um, so this site, is, there's one single unit dwelling on the northeast portion, but primarily it's a vacant site. It is, again, it, because of that, it is in our adopted inventory for 12 units. 
um, as it um, has an entitled subdivision. Um, but with the proposed zoning, we're proposing to go to moderate, medium density residential with 84 total units. The next site is Elwood's, 35 Elwood Station Drive. So this is off of Hollister. Um, it is currently vacant. It had a use, and it has an entitlement for a new use, but it hasn't been built yet. Um, it is um, So the current zoning is CG, so it's not in our inventory, our adopted inventory. And with the proposed rezoning, um, it would count towards 146 units. Um, next site um, is 6470 Hollister. So this is one that was. Um, uh, added, I believe, as an alternate site during the study sessions over the summer. Um, and the discussion here, it's a vacant site. It's currently zoned CG. Um, it's a smaller site relative to some of the other ones. Um, but what we're proposing to do is rezone it to CC so that it can it could facilitate mixed use. So we could get housing on the site. Um, and, and there was discussion about CC maybe being an appropriate um, designation so that you could have housing, but it could also potentially serve some of the new residential development with a commercial component. Um, you know, as we, we know, there's been quite a lot of housing development in close proximity as this is just kind of outside the door here across the way from City Hall. Um, next up is 7360 Hollister Ave. This is also off of Hollister. Um, and this is, it's three parcels under the same ownership. The back of the site is developed with a couple residential units, but again, primarily vacant. Um, it's zoned community commercial. Um, but what's proposed, and so there, it is in the inventory um, because of the mixed-use potential on the site, um, but this, the change would be proposed to high-density residential and an increase to 69 units towards our arena accounting. Next up is 490 South Fairview, often referred to as the Yardy site, as Yardy is the, the owners of the site and they have existing operations there. Um, so currently it's zoned business park, which doesn't allow housing. And what's proposed is a, um, a, a unique case here where we're, um, the housing element proposes to add, to keep that base district of business park. Um, so the base district wouldn't change, base designation wouldn't change, but to add a high density residential overlay. Um, it, it's not unique in our code. We have two other kind of parcel specific overlays. Um, so this would be to add an overlay to allow RH, uh, an RH development on the site. So essentially, it would keep their conforming status, but they could come in and get processed essentially as if under the, um, the RH uh, regulations and procedures should they um, proceed on that path. And um, it's a fairly large site, over eight acres, and so in the, um, the updated housing element, um, 198 units are counted on that site. Um, so kind of big picture, what does that all mean? Um, what does that mean for our numbers? So uh, here is just a table of our arena. And again, that, this, these are the numbers we have to show adequate capacity for. And, and as you'll see in the next slide, we combine low and very low to lower income as they're counted the same in, in state housing accounting. Um, and so our lower income is 1,006 total. And then the total arena is 1,837. So in our adopted housing element, we showed adequate capacity, but we, we moved th those numbers around, removed some sites, et cetera, and then we've added in these rezoning sites as well. And this table, there's a lot of numbers here, but really the big numbers are, the, you know, the test is that last row, and that's showing um, our surplus by, by category. And so what you see is we have, with all of those proposed land use designation and zoning changes, 
we would have a surplus in every category, which is what we need to show. And, and most significantly, um, as we mentioned earlier, with those changes, we had a shortfall. We had create with the changes based on the HDD input, we had a shortfall in lower income. And with these um, properties included, uh, under the assumptions that we just went over, um, we would have a surplus of 227 units in lower income. As we mentioned during the, um, the study sessions in July, we wanted to have a, a little bit of a surplus. We didn't want to just get right to that number um, because these projects may come in with different affordability levels, and we always have to show that we have that capacity. So we, wanted to, we want to have some buffer there so um, we're not back at this after the first project comes in. Um, so that, that's an important thing to keep in mind, and so that buffer is important. And then overall, we have a pretty significant surplus. But it really was getting that, getting to that surplus in lower income was really the impetus for those land use designation changes in subprogram HE2.1A. And this is just um, a map. We've already shown this once tonight. Um, but it shows the, um, the housing element sites inventory. And so mostly you see green, and green is existing sites from our adopted housing elements. So um, you see um, a lot of those are those mixed-use sites along Tyrell Fairview through Old Town, closer to Patterson, um, and kind of smattered around Western Goleta. And then the blue sites are sites proposed for rezoning. And I do want to note that some of those blue sites, if they weren't proposed for rezoning, they would be green because quite a few of those sites in our inventory for, in, in, for rezoning are in the inventory just at a lower density. Um, so did want to note that as well. Um, so as Ann had mentioned, um, you know, and we've shown a little bit, it's not just about the rezoning. There are other programs and revisions we made. Um, another one in the, um, to address feedback from HCD was a refinement to our program to coordinate with the Glita Water District. And this was just like some fine tuning based on um, a comment letter we received from the Water District. Um, so it doesn't really create substantive changes, but it just better articulates the status of um, the water moratorium and water access and, and what would make sense in our collaboration and coordination with the Water District moving forward. Um, so the next item is um, from the HCD letter are constraints. And so these are looking at things within our regulations and procedures that could hinder housing development. And, and we'll go through these briefly. So the first is land use controls. Um, HCD wanted us to look more at, again, really like kind of our zoning regulations and what might um, stop housing development projects from moving forward. So we looked at several different things um, and proposed um, several different changes to our rules and regulations. The first is on parking, and this is, um, our zoning code allows for shared parking, but it requires a conditional use permit, so it has to go to hearing. And a lot of the factors, really the factors to justify a, um, a shared parking agreement are objective. They're based on a traffic study. So we're looking at kind of downshifting that process because it really is kind of a objective review that may not need a conditional use permit. So that may help facilitate mixed use where you have a commercial and residential component that may share, be able to share parking um, based on a site-specific analysis. Um, next is heights, um, and we've we mentioned the second one of these changes, the commercial old town to 35 feet from 30, and again, that was really to support that mixed use. And then we also have in the, the amendments an increase in the height standards 
in planned residential, medium density residential, and high density residential in the coastal zone. So currently, that height standard in the coastal zone for those three zones is 25 feet, where in the inland, it's 35 feet. And again, when, you're, when we're looking at trying to get these densities, um, you know, that can be a real limiting factor in, in the potential on those sites. Um, and it, we do want to note that there are other zones in the coastal zone that allow 35 feet. So this isn't something kind of out of step with other development standards in the city. Um, as we mentioned, um, the open space standard, looking at that as a constraint, um, some of these changes serve two functions in our responses to HCD. Um, when we looked at densities again, um, the community commercial from 12 to 20 to further support mixed use development. Um, and then one that we proposed in the housing amendments is to allow adjustments to density standards through review of a development plan. So there's um, development plans, which are discretionary projects that have to go to hearing, um, allow greater flexibility from our some of our development standards, like heights and setbacks. There's a, a suite of standards that adjustments, it's kind of a deviation if you can justify it. Um, and again, it's through this discretionary process. Density is not listed as one of those right now, and we thought that it made sense to include a little flexibility there for a decision maker through public process, through design review to say, hey, this still works. Um, this still is compatible with the neighborhood. It still is aesthetically right, et cetera. And, and to at least give that opportunity. Um, so that's, that's one of the proposed amendments. And then we also changed some lot coverage um, language. The first of these, um, utilizing gross lot area for lot coverage calculations, we actually already did that. Um, but we're calling it out now. Um, um, so we did that in the in the fall, or sorry, in the spring through zoning amendments. And then the second is to increase the lot coverage standard in RH to 50% maximum lot coverage. It's currently 40. Um, we'll, this is something we heard from HCD pretty pretty clearly on. And um, as staff, we, we felt like that was still justifiable. Um, it's not a a wholesale increase, and it also may provide flexibility where you maybe get a little more lateral development and maybe can, can um, adjust heights a little more. So it may, in some instances, actually provide better flexibility in design that we think might, um, might make sense. Um, so the next item they asked, they wanted more detail about our inclusionary housing policy and standards. Um, some of what they asked for we just hadn't put in the technical appendix, but we, we had the information. Um, we had the justification for our fees through um, those fee studies we did a couple years ago. So we detailed kind of how we did that. And um, we also detailed the alternative means of compliance. And what that means is we certainly want, first and foremost, the inclu those inclusionary units to be built as part of the project. That's the most straightforward way to do this. There all are alternative means. You, there's specific findings that would have to be made, but there is a path forward. And so we just we spelled that out in a little more detail, um, and then um, we we just made clear that um, like how our inclusionary works with density bonus, and that you can kind of qualify for density bonus through inclusionary. So it's kind of you do our inclusionary, and you actually build the units on site. You may be well on your way to qualifying for density bonus, which will provide you other incentives under state law. It's not that you have to have a separate pot of affordable units under inclusionary and under density bonus. So we've made that, we, we've stated that, but that, that is how we, how we pra uh, practice now. Um, we did propose one change to the inclusionary policy, and that was to allow the review authority to be someone other, from, other than city council 
to approve alternative means of compliance. So right now, the way we have it written is only city council can do that. Um, and, and that can create more hearings. Um, if it has to go to city council, you might have a ministerial project otherwise, and all of a sudden it has to go up the chain that high. Um, and so we wanted to provide a method so whoever the decision maker is otherwise for the project can make that um, decision about um, alternative means of compliance. And certainly all those projects, those lower level projects would still be appealable. Um, so it doesn't mean that city council would never weigh in if there was, um, if it was highly contentious. But we wanted to kind of create a little more flexibility, a little less procedure um, for that change. Um, next up is uh, processing and permit procedures. Um, so we, we added a lot more detail just about things like our findings for different entitlements and details about our process and what kind of projects have to go through which entitlement processes in the technical appendix. Um, and then we, we proposed some revisions. Again, this is uh, what Ann was mentioning earlier, a little bit like streamlining, a little bit of simplifying of processes where we think it's, it's warranted. Um, one was um, mixed use projects currently always require a conditional use permit. Um, and so we, um, one of the program amendments is to remove that requirement. So that means if you have an existing like commercial facility and you want to go to mixed use, you don't necessarily need a conditional use permit if you meet the other standards. If you're building something new, you might not need the, you wouldn't need the conditional use permit anymore, but you may well need a development plan or some other entitlement. It doesn't mean that there's no review anymore wholesale. But it, it certainly, especially for existing development that wants to do a conversion, it provides a little more flexibility, a little less process, especially where we want to see, you know, we, we think mix, those mixed-use projects are going to be important moving forward. Um, we also um, included in subprogram 2.1J a new exemption for certain mixed-use projects from the requirement of a development plan. And we didn't spell out exactly what that limit would be, but right now in our zoning code, we have kind of a rule for how many units, you know, when you hit a threshold of number of residential units, you have to get a development plan. When you hit a certain square footage of uh, commercial development, you have to get a development plan. But there's no separate standard for mixed use. And we think it would be good to really think about that and call out a specific rule as to when you could go get it approved with, say, a land use permit versus a development plan. So again, we haven't spelled out what that's going to be. That'll be a 2024 project. Um, but we want it, We think it makes sense to have a specific, a little bit clearer process um, for applicants to understand, you know, especially these smaller, smaller mixed use where, how that can get processed. Um, and then we we also have a program to look at some of our findings to make sure that a finding can't get used simply to reduce density. Rather, you know, um, there's there's some ambiguity in some of our findings, and we want to make sure that. Uh, we want to relook at some of those findings and come back with revised findings um, through pu public hearings to look to look at giving a little more assurance as to the number of units in a project. And and so we'll we you know we'll certainly get into more detail when, when we have something more refined. But that's something we're going to look at um, should that amendment be included. And then also um, process changes to um, to change how we deal with map, mapped ESHA changes in the general plan. So we, we often get projects that the only general plan amendment, the only legislative action is a map change. And so it really changes how we process the project. It becomes a legislative action and gets kicked out of the Permit Streamlining Act. Um, and we were asked specifically about, from HCD about um, Permit Streamlining Act and how that interfaced with some of our recent housing projects. 
And so um, what we want to look at, um, and we don't have the proposed language yet, this will be a future implementation, is to look at a process for um, kind of m those map changes that don't trigger the legislative action. And, and, uh, and so wouldn't automatically go to city council every time. And so that's something we're going to look at, again, um, in the coming year. Um, the last main section, I, I believe, um, is uh, affirmatively furthering fair housing. And so this is um, a lot of the technical appendix is about affirmatively furthering fair housing, what the city will do to support um, fair housing in our city. Um, and so there was a lot of additional analysis done, new maps created, looking at fair housing issues in our sites inventory. Um, and we also included a new implementation matrix in program HE 3.1 and in the technical appendix. It's the same table. Um, and, and this kind of reorganized our AFFH implementation and, and focused more on some geographic targeting and metrics. Um, we don't think these are dramatically different. We're, we're comfortable with moving forward with those changes and, and what that'll mean for kind of staff um, responsibilities. Um, we also included some, some additional language in HE 3.1 in, in a few places. Um, one was a commitment to address issues of access and opportunity. And we flagged um, our diversity, equity, and inclusion plan. This is a, a pending project. I, I know they went out to bid. I'm not sure if a contract has been executed at this point. But it's something we had planned, and it really fit with some of the comments we heard from HCD. And so we, we really just highlighted it. Um, but it was something that the city was already moving on. Um, so we thought it was worthwhile to flag that as a housing element item, which we had not thought of um, previously. Um, we also included in HE 3.1F a focus on Old Town capital projects. Um, uh, the housing element identifies Old Town as a disadvantaged community under Cal Enviro screen. Um, and so we wanted to, to flag that. And, and the reality is, is Public Works does focus on Old Town quite a bit. And so we were really... Um, in the technical appendix and in this program, really kind of stating what kind of what the city is doing, um, but we just hadn't stated that and, and flagged it as something um, that the city prioritized. Um, and then there was also some additional language about place space um, issues of overpavement and displacement in 3.1A1. Um, finally, the 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 HED letter from March has advisories. They typically do this at the end, um, and it's not. Um, you know, necessarily like this is an issue with your housing online, this is a concern, um, but they flag these things, most of which don't require action. However, um, one of them about regarding emergency shelters, uh, we did make some changes in the housing element. Um, this is a new bill, um, a, a bill that was signed into law late in 2022, and um, it requires some changes to where we look at allowing emergency shelters and some definitions and standards. So you may remember in the spring, we did make some changes to our emergency shelter standards, and we're going to go back and have to do some more. Um, so this is kind of a round two of our emergency shelter amendments, and that would get us, you know, um, when we move forward with those, that would get us in compliance with AB 2339 of 2022. And, and that's the substantive summary of the housing element amendments. All right, so we'll kind of switch it over to um, the, the recommendation. Uh, but it, and as, as far as the, the next steps go, your um, whatever resolution that, that you approve or adopt tonight will be forwarded to the city council at a subsequent public hearing. And, um, and, and I'll flag that this, 
action that you're taking this evening um, for this hearing item B2 does not take any action on 449 and 469 Kellogg Way because that was already accommodated at the previous hearing. Um, it's, it's listed in one of the exhibits of the resolution, but with a reference that an action was already taken just to be inclusive of all the things that are in the housing element. Um, yes, so I'll turn it back to um, uh, uh, Vice Chair Maynard, and um, we're happy to entertain any questions. So are there any Planning Commission questions? And a, a quick note, oh, I noticed when I was um, out of the room for B1, if commissioners can make sure to speak directly into their mic, um, when watching the video, it was hard to hear some of the commissioners. So make sure that you speak directly in your mic um, while we get into the discussion. I would like to ask about um, the um, water accessibility that we have right now in um, the city of Goleta. Um, can I ask what the present status of what the water district policies are and the moratorium and that sort of thing, where we are with that? Okay, so the, the, we do have a number of policies that, that were added um, back in the, in the January version of the housing element and clarified um, to coordinate with the Glita Water District more, and we have been. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the Water District, they haven't been um, releasing new water um, meters since, uh, for, for, a long, for many years now, because of the passage of a safe ordinance where certain findings have to be made. And they, the staff is preparing to reconsider that safe ordinance and the, the findings that were made um, and, and coming uh, to one of their committees on tomorrow. And then um, we assume we'll be at a board meeting next month. And then they'll be able to release um, new uh, Canon Will Serve letters so that, that new projects coming in um, that didn't have, that weren't already kind of grandfathered before the safe ordinance was passed can get access to to uh, new water meters. So um, before our housing element, it's still it, the, the state wouldn't let us um, like discount our housing requirement um, because of the safe ordinance. And again, they wouldn't let us do that. Um, but not being able to get housing uh, housing can and will serve letters or housing meters has you know affected some projects. But that will that will change, and then we will see projects that have access to water. So you you would expect that change to happen, that change from the water district to allow new water meters to be next month after a particular meetings take place, is that correct? They have a process to go through and that hasn't been outlined yet. Um, if you look on the Goleta Water District's website under their, um, I think it's their long range planning uh, committee when that's meeting tomorrow. You can read the staff report where they they uh, state the findings from the safe ordinance, and um, you know they have their what they're going to consider there. And it's clear that they are meeting their the requirements under the safe ordinance in order to be able to lift it. That said, they don't. It doesn't just open the floodgates, so to speak, of um, of you know getting getting water meters. You have to. They have to go through a process. They can only issue a certain number a year. 
and and there's still a lot of details. So I, I wouldn't think that this is just going to happen um, like a, a sleeper item or overnight because they they have there's a lot of little details to work through um, about how they'll release it. And of course, the Glida Water District's not set to the city boundary. It's it's um, includes the county and you know other lands. So uh, we have a lot still. There's still a lot of unknowns, but it is good news for housing projects um, if you're. Um, you know, if you're considering the housing crisis, because we'll we'll be able to get more water for those housing units. But to be more specific, I can't answer your question about exactly the date that they're going to be that the board um, the board met last night, and we went to that board meeting. Uh, they did not discuss the safe ordinance that wasn't on their agenda. So um, um, we'll we'll continue to track that, and and the public can too, and um, and that there were a lot of people from the public at the the meeting last night. So um, I hope that answers your question. Uh, yes, that's, that's very helpful. Um, and then also under the underwater, um, so to speak, um, do I know um, some of, I don't, I don't know exactly how many, but I know some of the um, properties in the housing element already have a water connection. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, off the top of your head, so to speak, do you have an I any idea how many of the properties in the housing element do not have an existing water connection? Uh, Co Commissioner Miller, I, I don't, I wouldn't be prepared to answer that specifically. There is, there is water, you know, they can reallocate water on sites, that old sites like old commercial buildings and that don't have um, water efficiency uh, plumbing, for example, and fixtures will have more water than others because they're, you're using a lot of water, and then if they added units, they could spread that water around. Uh, but, but I wouldn't. I don't want to answer for that. I don't. We haven't run an assessment as to exactly like what water fixtures are there or what what sites have have water. It's, it's so controversial. It's really it's really complicated, and um, yeah. So I'm I'm sorry I can't answer that question. But it will be answered much more specifically when um, projects come in, come forward with applications, as they could now. And I think maybe we're not seeing some applications on these vacant sites because they, they, they can't get the water or enough water. Right, right. right. That's, that's my understanding as well. And yes, uh, and I, I am aware that it is a very, very complicated process. So um, I was just curious if you just happen to know, but... Um, yes, I, I, I think that with, uh, you know, as each project comes forward individually, there will, the water will be just one of many things that will have to go into um, consideration for it to be, um, to become a project. So, okay, thank you. Are there any questions from other commissioners? Uh, Commissioner Chapman. Thank you. Um, so a question I have about um, sort of the state's uh, letter of the accepted draft and as far as this hearing, if there was anything that we wanted to request uh, as far as changes to the housing element, um, how could any potential changes affect that acceptance? Commissioner Chapman, if we were to change, uh, make a change to the housing element, we would have to submit it to, we're going to have to submit it to the state. And they do have a, a time period 
that they can review. And they could, if we change something, that could open up the um, drafting compliance letter that they issued to us. So theoretically, let's say we changed a typo. Um, I would doubt that they would change their drafting compliance. But anything of substance that required them to start digging in, like, hmm, how does that affect it? And what do they do now? And um, is that a constraint? And then that would be, you know, we would we would be in a different situation. And certainly, like, if we changed a site, and we would have to change the site inventory and all that math that goes along with it and check to see, did we still make our numbers? And if we didn't, we would be, you know, back at the drawing board. And, and you know, for sure, HCD will be all over that one. So I think making changes is challenging. That's why we, you know, invested time in the, in the study sessions. And um, not to say that there's no way you can change anything, but you know, we did our best to listen and to make the changes exactly as the state um, requested um, with, you know, tailoring it to the information that we um, gathered from the study sessions. Madam Vice Chair and Commissioner Chapman, I would just also add that it would completely change our time frame. So as you heard previously, there's a February 15th deadline by which we need to have this housing element to the state uh, to get it certified in compliance with the statute. And this would set in motion another at least 60-day review by the state. So that would interfere with our time frame. Um, and as Ms. Wells indicated, it would reopen um, all of the issues. We um, The draft and compliance letter would presumably no longer be valid if we change something. Uh, the state would then have to look at that uh, anew. Okay, so so summary of that is is that that any substantial change could kind of reset the clock on that. Yes. Okay. Um, I have many more questions. <laughs> um, Please keep going with your questions. Okay, yeah. Um, so one of the questions was about the uh, community commercial mixed use. Um, what was the the basis for for that change? Um, I know we have, you know, uh, housing zones that allow up to 30. Um, so there's generally a range of from 15 to 30 for the, the multifamily housing. Um, how was the, the 20 units per acre cho chosen? Uh, uh, Commissioner Chapman, um, we looked at like our other zones and we really saw that community commercial was kind of lower than the others. Um, you know, just in terms of kind of buildability, you know, going to much higher density, we're looking at a real different project, especially as part of mixed use, because we, we do want, you know, those are commercial zones, and, you know, commercial is important as well. Um, and so we felt like that was kind of an appropriate kind of change at this point, was to kind of get that up with the other, the other um, mixed use zones in terms of density, in terms of the residential component of those sites. Um, and we, we still think those could deliver a lot of units, because some of our commercial sites are quite big, um, so we think that there's there's really some potential there, um, and you can get quite a few housing units on some of those sites at 20 units per acre. So was was there? So you saying there there were already existing mixed use zones zones that allowed mixed residential use that had the the cap of 20, and this this the CC was just brought up to those. Commissioner Chapman, that's correct. We have three zones, so mm -hmm. it's. Uh, community commercial, commercial old town, and office and institutional. And, you know, historically, I think since the adoption of the general plan, um, 
office and institutional and commercial old town have allowed up to 20 units per acre and CC was kind of a lower number. And so we were really bringing CC up to kind of now have kind of a standard of 20 units per acre for mixed use. Okay, thank you. Um, another question I have is, uh, I think it was the, the RH zone, um, one of the uh, policies or the, the housing element policies was to, uh, programs, was to increase the maximum lot coverage of that from 40% to 50%. Can you explain the, the purpose of the maximum lot coverage standard and, and sort of what is the basis for, for the 50% versus uh, any other percentage? So the lot coverage is really kind of a one way to get at massing. Um, so there's kind of different ways. Your heights, your setbacks, your lot coverage really kind of sets your boxes for the structural development on the site. So the lower the lot coverage, kind of essentially the less massing, all thing, other things being equal. Um, so this, this would increase the, that massing and um, the getting the existing standard is 40%, and that's been a long-standing lot coverage standard for high-density residential in the city. Um, and uh, you know, in our communications with HCD, they wanted to see that move up a little bit, and so we we felt like this was um, kind of a number that was not a, a dramatic change where you know we you know up to like 75, 80% where like you could then kind of the whole site would be um, structural development. Um, so we thought we felt like it was a, a reasonable increase that again would allow some more massing but also potentially more flexibility in how those structures get built and you may be able to protect the view shed a little better by going lower and wider um, so um, so that's how we came to that and are, are there other standards that that cover massing or is that the primary way that that's controlled Mr. Chapman, I think um, you have your setbacks, heights, and um, our lot coverage. Um, we The other way that sometimes zoning codes do that is floor area ratio. We do not have floor area ratio standards, so that's another way to get at massing, but we don't have that standard. So it's kind of the setbacks, lot coverage, height are really the main ones. Okay. Um, related to that, uh, I also had a question. Um, you said some sites were removed from the housing inventory due to the lot shape and size. Um, is that effect? Is that in tandem with other constraints like um, setbacks? Does that kind of affect that? And would that any changes that affect the, the feasibility of any of those sites? Uh, Commissioner Chapman, um, yeah, some of the things we looked at were like really narrow lots. There's some in Old Town, um, and so we looked at we looked at narrow lots, particularly where there wasn't a common owner. Um, so if, you know, if they're two narrow lots together, we thought maybe that had better potential. But like if it was just a really narrow lot or where there was like an internal lot, so you'd have to, you know, deal with access issues across other private lots. So some of those things we did look at. But I mean, a narrow lot that, you know, setbacks would be a, a challenge if you had a, you know, 25 foot wide lot and you're trying to build housing with, with setbacks, even, even small ones in Old Town, um, that, that could be a challenge. Um, but, you know, not as big a, a constraint on larger sites where you can move the massing around. And we also um, changed the, you know, the rules about um, how we calculate density and we look at um, the, the total lot area. So even if you have to move from one area because of setbacks, you could build denser, you know, in the buildable area to get that, those, those number, those units. Um, so we also co considered that as already as in the adopted housing element. Commissioner Chapman, the um, 
the fact that the lots were included before uh, and are now removed from the inventory doesn't mean you can't have a housing project. And it was in before because if you have one owner of multiple parcels or someone purchases them, then it's a it's a different situation on a, a narrow lot or a lot that's in the middle of a developed area. Um, so 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 that could still happen. And again, like removing something from the inventory doesn't mean that it no longer has housing potential. It's just that a CD would consider it unrealistic because of those limitations. Correct. So counting it towards arena um, w w was not allowed. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, so uh, another question I have is um, one of the um, housing element programs is to uh, revisit the parking standards for small units, um, and another was about the conditional use permit for shared parking on mixed use. Um, the schedule for those Title 17 um, amendments uh, is through the end of 2025. Um, we may be seeing uh, a lot of applications, depending on what happens with the water allocations um, for units that have smaller um, units, uh, one bedroom and studio units, uh, I believe was specifically called out in that program. Um, is it possible to consider those particular, uh, I think those could have a large impact. Uh, is it possible to consider those within 2024? Um, so Commissioner Chapman, um, certainly those deadline, those due dates um, are the furthest extent, right? Um, so theoretically, we could tackle them earlier, but that's contingent upon, you know, other uh, work priorities, um, division prior projects that will we have to tackle. So, um, and we, you know, your point's well made, but we also, we have, you know, a, a set of other changes that we need to do, and we tried to create a little bit of a stagger so that once we finished the housing element, we weren't just transitioning to only doing housing element-related amendments, that there's, there's some other things on our docket as well. Um, so we wanted to kind of be reasonable and fair about what we thought was realistic about timeframes. Um, especially some of the housing element implementations that where we um, we don't have explicitly defined in the program what exactly the change is going to be, so that they're you know when we go through hearings, um, it is not um, hey this is the you know the lot coverage in RH. Um, when that amendment to the zoning code comes forward, it's going to be proposed at fifty percent because that is explicit in the program. Where some programs it is a little more it is that we will we will tackle this question. Um, but there may be need, need for further outreach, further discussion, and it's not as straightforward. And so we wanted to be um, respectful of that process in the future and not say, oh, we're just going to get it done, you know, in the spring or something like that. Uh, so another question I have is um, one of the, uh, the program 2.6 is uh, encouraging um, ADUs. Um, one of the things I've seen that many cities around California are doing are uh, basically having a catalog of pre-approved uh, ADU models. Um, is that something that the planning department has, has looked into and considered? Um, so the, the question about uh, model ADU, we, we are looking on that at a regional level and sharing information. So more to follow on that. 
Um, again, as as Andy pointed out, like we we have a workload and we have lists of things that we have to do, um, but we are we are tracking um, a model ADU and and we we have some feedback from planners that you know there's some challenges with them and their their use and that how how many uh, applicants are actually taking them up on it. So I think on this one, it's good to be working along with our neighbors and and the ones that do have model ADU ordinances. Um, learning from them so that we can benefit from them at some some future date. Thank you. And uh, yeah, finally, one more question. Um, so in regards to some of the programs about uh, removing conditional use permits, um, for example, with the shared parking or with the, uh, I think, smaller mixed-use projects, um, can you remind what is the purpose of a conditional use permit? And why is that imposed on, on certain uses? Hey, Commissioner Chapman, um, one of the things is you'll have some unique findings that give a little more latitude and an analysis. And, and certainly like with uses, we often flag for conditional use permits, uses that may kind of have some funky case-specific issues so that we can really analyze rather than have kind of a blanket. We have standards for specific uses, right, in the code. And so, so for some uses, like, hey, we know these are the three things we want to regulate specific about this use. But there's other uses where it's like, man, the, the range of issues can be pretty, pretty broad, and we want to kind of be cautious and really further analyze these things. So it really kind of elevates the analysis um, and, and consideration. And there may be more public concern, so you can have public hearings and really have that opportunity um, to kind of hash out any concerns. And the conditional use permit, major, particularly the major conditional use permit, brings it up to the planning commission and the city council level in a way that, like a ministerial or just a, a something that's uh, permitted by right, wouldn't necessarily have those public meetings. Is that correct, That's correct. Like a land use permit is um, signed off on essentially by the planning director, but it's really a staff level mm -hmm. um, approval. It's really a case planner that does the bulk of the work. Um, and there may be like on-site noticing, but you're not going to have like a public hearing where you're, the public will be able to engage with the decision maker prior to an action on the approval. Um, so it, it kind of, it's both analysis and, um, to Vice Chair Maynard's point, kind of procedurally different. Um, yeah. Okay. And and so essentially the the determination was, was made that when it comes to smaller mixed-use projects, they don't require that, that kind of likely don't require that kind of analysis yeah commissioner chapman so like for example right now residential projects up to four units don't need a development plan right so there's like a threshold where like if it's if it's small you can go land use permit and in most commercial zones i believe the threshold is five thousand square feet of new development so if you're under five thousand square feet you can get in with a land use permit rather than a development plan and in our code you could maybe piece that together with the mixed use project but um, you know, just even talking to planners, the questions being asked, and it's like, oh, that's not super clear about what our expectation is: land use permit versus development plan. When it's a small mixed use project, so you know, if it's five thousand square feet and three units, is that now a develop? You know, so trying to come up with something clear so the applicants can maybe figure out and maybe make a decision pr really clear and open-eyed about what their process might be and. And so it's, we think that's, that's a benefit. And, and again, exactly what those numbers are, what that threshold would be, is that that's something we haven't identified explicitly and something we'd, we'd, we'd want to identify through that, you know, uh, proposed by 
planning staff, but then um, kind of hashed out through the hearing process. Okay. Um, oh, and um, regarding uh, two to four units, uh, you had mentioned up to four units. Um, I noticed in, in sort of the uh, programs about the diversity of housing types, uh, give a breakdown of, uh, or in the technical appendix, give a breakdown of the, the different types of housing. Um, I noticed a couple things about that. I had, I had a couple questions about, um, so the, the two to four units was a small fraction, uh, was eight, about 8.5% 8 of the housing stock within the city. Um, and I also noticed that the um, in lieu fee for as an alternative for the um, affordable housing, uh, the fees are based on square footage. Um, and the fees for uh, in lieu fee for two to four units is higher than the the other types of of units. Do you know why that is? Um, and for reference, that is table um, ten seven. We'll just give staff a minute to consult. <laughs> uh, Commissioner Chapman, I, I think we'd have to review the tape, but um, this, the kind of those specific fees and the different breakdowns um, was discussed as part of those, those fee studies that were brought forward a couple years ago. Um, so I don't have an answer offhand. Um, kind of the analysis there got pretty nuanced pretty quick. Um, so I don't think we'd be able to answer that um, on the fly right now. Yeah, we we would just be we would be guessing. We would have, we have to go into the research, but it was it was thoughtful and and you know specific about um, how they use square footage, et cetera. Okay, thank you. That's all. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> Commissioner Fullerton. Do you have any questions? No, not at this time. Um, I have a couple of questions. Um, kind of work backwards, actually, building off of some of what. Commissioner Chapman asked about. Um, for the removal of the major conditional use permit for mixed-use residential development, is that the removal of that in all cases or just for smaller mixed-use residential development? Uh, Vice Chair Manager, that's a little bit of to be determined. Okay. But the, kind of the assumption is this would be the small projects. Kind of in line with those small residential and small commercial, there'd be a specific standard mm -hmm. saying like, hey, if you want to do a small mixed-use project, um, there may be a, a simpler path. But again, exactly what that means will be hashed out during public hearings before the Planning Commission and City Council in the future. Um, for the changes to mapped ESHA, wouldn't that normally require consideration of a CEQA that would then come to the Planning Commission or City Council? There was talk of the changes to mapped CEQA, or sorry, changes to mapped ESHA being a little bit more of a streamlined process, but wouldn't that have to go through a CEQA process? Um, Vice Chair Mayor, we haven't outlined what the alternative process would be to a general plan amendment, so it's a little bit premature to, to state what exactly the process is. Typically, those map changes come with a project that's big enough to trigger discretionary review, mm -hmm. like a development plan, which would then have secret documentation. So it's often included as part of an analysis of a secret document, if, mm -hmm. if not always, then typically. Um, but again, um, we haven't exactly outlined what that process might be in the future. We would, mm -hmm. we would need to work through that. And one of, one of the things that uh, the state HCD commented on to us was 
that we have to we do general plan amendment initiations for um, and that would include a map change that's already part of a project mm. and and you have to and the ESHAs are you know science based so it's another hearing to add to um, all the steps in the process to do a general plan amendment initiation and so that that was a comment that we got from them it was very clear that that's a lot of steps for something that's that's about science that's already part of um, the package of another another project so that's you know kind of behind one of the reasons why we have uh, made those proposed revisions and um, for the parking um, review so is that only for shared parking or would that also relate to somebody who's maybe um, like we had an applicant come in um, very recently that had a transportation management plan and so was advocating for a smaller parking allocation would that have the same um, move to ministerial or is it only for shared parking that we're looking at here uh, Vice Chair Mayor, this is only for the shared parking that currently requires the C major CBP. Um, you gave us an update on the 6470 Hollister, and I know that that was one of the properties we hadn't been in touch with the landowner on prior. I'm just curious if you have any updates on communication with the landowner, if we have heard from them since. We do not have an update. Okay. Um, can you uh, confirm for the open space reduction, what was the required amount of open space and what, it's, what is it being reduced to? Make sure, man, if you just give us a minute yeah, to pull that up. Thank you for that. And while we look, I'll answer the second part. Um, we haven't identified the proposed change, so that's okay. that's again one that we wanna we wanna think through, and we weren't prepared to be absolute about it in the program at this point. Um, so we're, it's something that we'll look at. That actually answered what I wanted. So if we're gonna consider what the reduction is gonna be later, then that was what I needed for tonight. So. Um, I wanted to ask a couple projects that are more specific to Kenwood Villages, just to understand. So I know we. Um, one of the things that was changed since, or that we um, gave direction to staff to help us solve was sort of how to approach Kenwood Villages. And an innovative approach was created by staff since our joint meeting with City Council and Planning Commission um, of creating an RH designation, but with this 190 limit, um, with, with, with 190 cap. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of what that approach is and what that means for the site? Sure, so the, the site is uh, one parcel mm -hmm. and it's pretty big. And um, what we presented at the study sessions was a range of 20 to 30 units per acre mm -hmm. for the whole parcel um, so that HCD would let us count it towards lower income uh, regional housing needs allocation. And what um, the direction was to reduce that um, upper end number and cap it at 190. So that would be the 30 units per acre, right? The range of um, high density resident residential is 20 to 30 units. So now we have this reduced acreage uh, or unit count. So we, but we still have the whole acreage of the parcel. And so HCD didn't like that because they said what, mm -hmm. you know, you have to guarantee that you can get 20 units per acre on the site. 
and, um, and, and 20 to 30 units per acre. So we did the math, and then you'd have to get a development footprint um, of 6.33 acres in order to meet that objective for the cap. And so what we did was, um, you know, we said the developable area. Mm-hmm. And we reviewed this language with HCD. They made some suggestions. Um, so basically, um, you know, anything that has structures, sidewalks, pavements, impervious surfaces, the buildings, mm-hmm. um, would be within that 6.33 acres. And that doesn't mean it's going to be it, the, the cap and the, the acreage doesn't lock it in any particular location. And it's mm-hmm. aggregated together because there is a creek on the site. Um, so that, you know, that makes it a lot easier to accommodate the creek and the creek buffer and setbacks. And it gives them some flexibility with the design. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the um, kind of the layout. It doesn't, the, the, the new program doesn't um, restrict anything else other than that. So the applicant's going to come in and work with 6.33 acres. Um, and then the, the adjacent areas could be, you know, their stormwater system. It could be... Uh, open space could be, you know, it could be, you know, pathway, path, nature, paths, who knows what it is. They'll come in with something so it won't just be an island of a community. They have the whole parcel to work with. And there's some of those things that aren't considered developable development that they can use that other area and integrate it in. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the thinking behind the um, the way it's written and, and in it's guaranteeing us that 20 to 30 unit per acre density that HCD um, requires so we can count the site at lower income. And so the 6.33, it has to be one spot or it could be two spots within the site? It's just an aggregate of 6.33 of developable area. Okay, so it could be two different sections Mm -hmm. like, but together. Sure. Um, So they'd only be able to develop on the 6.33 and outside of the 6.33 acres the other parts of the 9.48 acres would have to be things like these walkways or open space or the other things you described. Yeah, stormwater, um, arch- archaeological protections, like those kinds of things that won't uh, be counted where it, at, if, if it didn't, if we were reverted back to um, how it was proposed before at the study sessions, um, they could spread it out um, across the, the site. And yeah, so and they would, yeah. And the 190 units at 6.33 acres is 30 units per acre for the 6.33 acres. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And then I'm looking at, at the math. It's 126 mm-hmm. units would be the lower end of the range. Okay. And the 6.33 acres was identified based on hitting that 20 to 30 range. Correct. Okay. Um, and is the um, – so the 190 cap, where is that written into our code? Does that become like a general plan condition or part of the zoning or what kind of part of our planning process does the 190 cap end up written into? Vice Chair Maynard, um, this is for this item and for the next one. Um, so it the cap is is flagged in subprogram 2.1 HE 2.1A, and it's also um, in the sub- subsequent hearing you'll hear that it's spelled it's identified in the land use element and then in the zoning code. I think that is all my questions. I want to do one more quick check and see if any other commissioners have additional questions before we take public comment. Yeah. One follow-up question. So if we're talking about a cap of 190 units, how does that um, work with 
like density bonus? Like, are there possibilities that it would be higher than 190? Yes, um, uh, Commissioner Fullerton. As every project in the city, every housing project has the opportunity to meet, if they meet density bonus requirements, they can increase their unit count. Um, also, there's accessory dwelling units that can be included on their on their sites, and that's state law. So, um, yeah, so that would be standard across the board for anything, not just for this particular site. And if either of those were triggered, that would also be within the 6.33 acres. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Chapman. A uh, quick last question. Um, so part of the, uh, one of the things under consideration is increasing the minimum density uh, for RH uh, from 15 to 30 or to 20 units an acre for, for the site specifically uh, called for rezoning in the housing element. Um, why uh, was that done rather than increasing the, the minimum density of the zone writ large? Commissioner Chapman, the short answer is the for the site zone for RH, um, that's a state law requirement. So when you rezone a site after the original housing element deadline of February 15, 2023, um, the minimum density has to be 20 units per acre to count it towards lower income. So the sites, not all of our sites that are proposed for rezoning, but the ones proposed to be rezoned to RH need to be at least 20 units per acre. And so, you know, that... The, the RH at 15 to 30 generally provides some flexibility and, and doesn't you know, gives the, the developer the ability to build that higher density, but also the flexibility to have a combination of single family and multifamily, et cetera. So, um, you know, there's still, you know, we're still supporting that flexibility generally in RH, um, but certainly for the rezone sites, that's a mandate of state law. Thank you. Don't see any additional planning commission comments, um, so we will take it to public comment, um, and then probably I'll check in and see if anybody needs a break after public comment. But I like to do public comment if everyone's okay first, just in case there's any public who needs to leave. Um, so we'll take it to public comment, and then when we close public comment, I'll check in, see if anybody needs a break, and then we'll go to planning commission deliberation. Um, so if you have not submitted a speaker slip, please do so with our clerk. You can do that at any time during the public comment, and we would love to hear from you, and I will pass it to uh, clerk, the clerk to go ahead and guide us through public comment. I do have five speaker slips for this. We're going to start with April Reed, followed by Michelle Owen, and then Beth Collins. Okay, let's talk about transparency and reality. Uh, at least two months before the rezoning was announced to the public in July 2023, city staff contacted the property owner and other owners uh, to ask if uh, they would agree to rezone, and apparently during this time frame also to sign a letter uh, to agree to build on the property apparently required by the state. Uh, the property owner at Kenwood Village, drew up, rolled out, according to a council member, um, plans that included additional units and showed the plans with one of the city council members. When the rezoning was finally disclosed to the public in July, the city council member did not disclose this meeting 
uh, regarding the new plans information for increased zoning to the public. In addition, FOIA request did not produce the plans, which I had found out another way, or the so-called letter that everybody's supposed to sign. Um, so what does this letter or agreement say? What did you guys enter into with the property owners? Who drafted it? Uh, the idea that this trans is transparent is a joke. Now, let's go on to statements from other people, because I'm sure you don't want to hear statements from me. Statement from the property owner said his friends would ask, quote, who in their right mind would develop that lot? That's from the property owner's friends. Councilmember Kasdan said, quote, it is a brutal road, referring to Cali Real, unquote. Councilmember Richards, quote, first of all, I want to acknowledge we heard a lot of speakers talk about safety concerns on Cali Real, and I certainly acknowledge that I, I know that I personally don't enjoy riding my bike in that area. I know that cars go very fast. I know it is dangerous. I know there have been multiple accidents and even deaths on that. I take that very seriously, and I do not, uh, in, uh, in, I do not consider uh, that as deliberate. I didn't read that very well, sorry. City, another city council member, quote, staff had a mandate to hit a target knowing that they failed, that if they failed to do so, landowners would be able to go ahead and pursue developments without city approvals, the builder's remedy, unquote. So apparently the staff was instructed to pick sites regardless of whether they were good or not. That's how sites were picked. Is the property owner willing to build there? That's it. Uh, lastly, at the last city council meeting on rezoning in July 2023, council member, I just have a few more sentences, I'm sorry. Council member Kiriako asked the staff if they had the numbers, if they took Kenwood Village off the list. The staff responded that they did not have the numbers and despite this, the city looked at the difficulties with the property and saw fit to lower the housing unit number down to 284, I'm sorry, to 190 from 284, the number they picked because it was the lowest number they could have and still keep the high density zoning city council needed. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Reed. Our next public comment. Next, we have Michelle Owen, followed by Beth Collin. You can come up now and speak. Hi, everybody. My name is Michelle Owen, and I live directly across the street from the proposed site for 60 Calusa Avenue for high-density housing. I am here to oppose the rezoning of this site. Our El Encanto Heights community is zoned for single-home residents. This is why we live here. This is why we want to raise our children. This small piece of land, you're proposing 39 units. It's located between one of the most congested entrance and exit points of our neighborhood. It is already an unsafe corner for the students that walk to school 10 months of the year. Calusa Avenue's cross streets are Calareal and Del Norte Drive. It is the first street after Glen Annie exit and it is narrow. Where are they going to make the entrance and exit? 
on Calusa for this build. You can't come from Calareal. There's the mini mart and the mobile station. So where are they gonna try and put it? Probably right across from my house on Del Norte. The amount of traffic accidents at the corner of Calusa and Del Norte is ridiculous. I've sent some of you pictures of them. I happened to be in the car one day on my way to work and I heard it before I saw it. It happens all the time. I hear them in my living room. I'm ready. I already have to back my car in when I come home because it's too dangerous for me to back out. There's cars coming from both directions and students walking. So I have to back in at night so I can pull out straight in the morning so I don't get in an accident and God forbid hurt anybody. It's not uncommon that we have traffic backed up from Cathedral Oaks all the way to the light at Calareal, as well as backup of traffic all the way from the freeway exit. We have one of the busiest intersections at Glen Annie and Stork Road. The addition of this proposed area, this many units, is going to be too big. Where are all those cars going to be parked? Am I going to have to walk out my front door and stare at 80 cars for the 39 units? We already have the influx, the traffic influx from the big box stores, all the new units you've already built down on Hollister, we deal with the traffic and pollution. It is time to find a different location south of Glen Annie. There are empty lots right across the street from City Hall, rezone the high density housing projects there on Los Caneros, where it won't ruin the single home community that already exists. There is no water meter at Calusa. Please, I'm begging you to not diminish the quality of life that we have in our beautiful community. This is a bad idea. And if this process, if this passes and there is one student or pedestrian hurt or God forbid killed, it will be all of your faults if you for can. not heeding this warning. It is too dangerous to add more traffic to that cor corner. Commissioners, I appreciate your questions. You're very thoughtful, and I thank you for your concerns, and thank you for listening to mine. Thank you very much for your public comment. Who's next? Up next, we have Beth Collins, followed by Greg Jenkins, and then Ken Elkin. Vice Chair Maynard, uh, Planning Commissioners, hi. I'm Beth Collins from Brown Scene. I hope you received my letter. Um, it applies to this matter, B2, as well as B3. Uh, I know this has been a challenging process uh, for everyone, uh, staff, um, and all of you. Um, and it may be tempting to think it's over in light of HCD's letter. Uh, in fact, there's still time to make sure you get this right. Uh, if you can't change anything, why would we have a hearing? Um, you all have discretion here today. You have responsibility to review what's before you and advise counsel on this. That is exactly why we're here. Plus, if any change you propose is actually going to increase the likelihood of housing, that will only make the housing element more defensible. HCD is going to sign off on a, a more permissive uh, housing element with more housing opportunities. Um, any housing project starts with one thing a willing owner. 
no housing project happens without someone committed enough to push through what can be honestly incredibly costly, time-consuming, risky permitting process. Without a willing owner, developer, there's nothing. Yet the city's housing ide uh, element identifies many properties without any evidence of an interested owner. This is different from the city of Carpentria, the county, which gathered evidence of owner interest, prioritized those sites, and Goleta's housing element just didn't. Why is that important? Because if the city asked those owners if they were interested in developing housing in the next eight years, the answer would be no. Many are not even aware that they're going to be rezoned. Having a willing owner is especially important for underutilized sites because redevelopment of property into housing makes, has to make financial sense. It has to cover the cost of the land, the permitting, construction, insurance, management, and that's with a vacant site. If you have a non-vacant site and you have many in your inventory that is already making money, it has to cut, make money for the housing, all that construction, insurance, management, all that, plus it has to make up for the income that you're replacing. So it's a really high burden. Now your housing element has Calle Real Shopping Center with Trader Joe's, Chase Bank, Los Arroyos, Bowling Alley, all of those are paying rent. And we also have Fairview, University Plaza. Supposedly all of these are gonna be redeveloped in the next eight years with hundreds of units. With respect, it's just not going to happen. And the city needs to identify more sites. They need a bigger buffer to meet the arena. Um, I know it's been a big arduous process. I know you feel like you might be near the end, but I strongly suggest you add more sites onto your inventory to allow more housing to be produced. Thank you. Thank you for your public comment. Next up, Greg Jenkins, followed by Ken Alkin, and then Paula Hamp. Vice Chair Maynard, Commissioners, staff, thank you all for your um, service to our community. I'm here this evening representing many neighbors uh, surrounding the Dar Road parcel, including uh, at least 50 who attended a meeting with um, Councilmember Curiaco a couple months ago. I'm reminded to ask uh, for a show of hands of people from the Dara neighborhood. We lost a couple just before you started public comment. Um, we are thankful that a couple months ago you heard our objections when you were attempting to rezone the Dara property to high density. We know you believe medium density to be a reasonable compromise due to the pressure from the state. But most, if not all, of our neighborhood would prefer DARA to remain single family. If we are forced to accept medium density, some of us would view senior housing as an acceptable option. Good planning typically locates higher densities along public transit and infrastructure-rich corridors. It is not good planning to create islands of higher density and significantly taller structures within existing neighborhoods of single-family homes. Dara is the only property in your housing element completely surrounded by single-family homes and on an elevated knoll. I'd like to remind you of three of the 11 current findings that your design review board must make when reviewing a project. I know this doesn't apply to you guys, but it will apply to your DRB. First, the development will be compatible with the neighborhood and its size, bulk, and scale will be appropriate to the site and the neighborhood. 
Second, the development demonstrates a harmonious relationship with existing adjoining development. And finally, the project's architecture will respect the privacy of neighbors, is considerate of private views, and is protective of solar access off-site. Clearly, your DRB will have difficulty making any of these required findings if DARA proceeds with a higher density than the existing surrounding neighborhood. In conclusion, we ask that you direct your focus to the many other more appropriate sites in your housing element to meet the state's demands. Also, please consider the Shelby parcel located at 7400 Cathedral Oaks Road. This owner is ready, willing, and able to create significant housing stock that would remove the pressure to overdevelop parcels like Dara and Kenwood. It's unclear to many of us why the city hasn't included it. I know you've met, the council has met in uh, executive session over this. Anyhow, thank you for your time. Thank you, Mr. Jenkins. Our next one. Next up is Ken Elkin, who did have someone via Zoom who may wish to cede his time to, with your permission. Uh, can you have the person who's seating their time uh, come off mute on Zoom and just say their name and the, their wish to cede time? Mr. Elker, can you unmute yourself and let us know that you're there? Am I unmuted? Yes. Yes. If you could just say your name and your desire to cede time to Ken Elker, that'd be great. Go ahead, unmute yourself to give that permission. Did you get that? If you could restate that, please. Bruce Elker, I concede my time to Ken Elker. Thank you very much. It's uh, time conceded, so we'll have six minutes for Ken Elker. Thank you very much, um, <clears throat> Chair and Commissioners. Um, I will address uh, April's concerns right off the bat that she spoke about tonight. Um, there is no other plan besides the 60-unit plan that was put together probably 10 years ago. My dad and I, well, my dad really helped me um, very recently try to come up with a 190-unit project that would fit on the same layout that the 60-unit project was on. But I have not paid a nickel to any architect, and my dad is not an architect, despite what the independent article said. It has a lot of misquotes in it that Ms. Reed is repeating, unfortunately. Um, he's not an architect. We did it back of the napkin in AutoCAD to see how it would fit. No drawings have been done other than that. No architect has, has done drawings. I haven't shown any drawings to any commissioners or any council members other than the 60 units that have been proposed for about a decade. There was no letter from the state. I have not signed a letter from the state. I've never heard of a letter from the state. I didn't know anything about the upzoning until probably, I don't have the exact date, maybe a week or two before the workshops, when I did get a call from staff asking if I would be willing to build on an upzone, to which I said, of course, I've been trying to build for 16 years. <laughs> so uh, hopefully those answer, the answers those questions or those comments. Um, 
<sighs> didn't want to have to spend time on this, but um, I need to respond to the verbal comments made by my neighbor, April Reed, at the Monday Planning Commission meeting. Ms. Reed expressed concern about lack of vegetation management and fires on Kennebec Village property. I did know about one of the fires, but she mentioned it once before, but Monday was the first time I heard about the second fire. Ms. Reed stated that in 2013, I did not cut and mow my yard, so it caused a brush fire and almost burned down her house. She stated there was a second brush fire in 2015 because I didn't mow the yard. She stated that I received a violation in 2019 for not mowing, and I received another violation this year. I called this morning to double check on this and spoke with uh, Deputy Fire Marshal Fred Tan, who confirmed that the fire department has never issued a notice of violation on the Kennebec property. He did state that they have called to remind me to mow and that I have always cleared the field if they have called. He said that any phone calls I received are part of a program they have of regular phone calls to everyone in the county with large parcels and that they're just reminder calls and that Kenwood is typically mowed, so they typically don't need to send a reminder call, but this is not a violation. Furthermore, Deputy Marshal Fred Tan told me that he got a complaint from Ms. Reed in December of 2019 regarding tall grass, so he came out and did an inspection of the property and did not find anything to be a hazard, and that no violations were issued because I had done the maintenance required. He pointed out that he included pictures in his report showing that the maintenance was done and the mowing was done. I've submitted all those to you uh, this afternoon, I got a response in the email that they were posted, but I didn't see them, so I'm not sure what happened. He went on to state that they do not have any records of violations that he has noted over the years, that even though they only require a 20-foot perimeter, that I've been mowing closer to 80. Um, this morning, the captain of vegetation management, Dustin McKibben, indicated that Ms. Reed filed another complaint in October of this year, and he stated, quote, I inspected the parcel on October 23rd and spent about 30 minutes talking with the complainant this afternoon or that afternoon in person to address her concerns. There were no violations and I went above and beyond, end quote. The fire department told me there was a fire in 2016, not 2015, that was 15 feet by 20 feet. I personally mowed the field in June of that year, so the cause of the fire was, uh, the cause of the fire was stated to be equipment. It was not caused by the weeds. In 2013, I'm told there was a three-quarter acre fire. The, the determined cause was, quote, it uh, was determined to be smoking materials left at scene alongside of sidewalk trail from Puerto. A potato cord for use to smoke marijuana was found. Uh, Deputy Fire Marshal Tan told me this was not a fire where he would require evacuation, that if the sheriffs did so, it was not under his direction. But simple notification to the uh, neighborhood uh, is what he would have required because this was not 50-year-old brush. It was light fuel fire of annual grasses. He stated that they had the fire put out in an hour and that the fire would not have burned down any houses. And I'm not making light of the fire. I had to evacuate during Gap. I had a friend that lost his house during the tea fire. I just need to set the record straight and ensure everyone concerned that the fires were not caused or started by the weeds on the property. I'm truly sorry that Ms. Reed had to experience what she perceived as a threat to her fire or her home. I do mow the grasses annually. I correspond with the fire department when they have questions or I have questions about weed abatement requirements and programs that they have from time to time since it does change. I mow further than is required. 
Uh, Ms. Reed has announced publicly that I received violations in 19 and 23 when apparently these were actually both complaints that she lodged with the fire department without bringing them to my attention or calling me first, neither of which resulted in a violation as the mowing was done. Again, I'm just trying to set this record straight. As I've done in the past, I would encourage Ms. Reed or anybody who has concerns to call me directly. I think it might be more satisfying and faster than lodging complaints with the fire marshal over and over again. I can't solve a problem if it's not brought to my attention until public forum several years later. Once housing is built, the threat of the fire should be significantly reduced. Am I out of time? That is unfortunately out of time. Please hold until uh, the next time public comment. Uh, okay. We only allow for three minutes of public comment. So. Okay, yeah. um, we'll take the next public commenter after Ken Alker. And thank you, Mr. Alker, for your comments. Uh, yes, let's go ahead and allow that. We have been allowing that. We don't have too many people tonight. Um, can you also fill out a speaker slip um, recognizing your seating of your time with the clerk? Okay, I want to quick uh, touch quickly on the friendship manner idea that I proposed in the letter that I sent um, a couple of weeks back. Um, I want to state, first of all, Ms. Reed has stated that uh, I claim that there will be many seniors who need medical care, that there... Um, that it will come with, uh, there will be a full-time staff with nurses and that everyone will be in wheelchairs and all of that is false. It is uh, simply, it's not a convalescent home. It's a senior living center for people 62 years of age and older. The living arrangements are more communal in nature, resulting in bedrooms and living areas that are, um, actually I went and looked, they're 280 square feet, 350 square feet and 600. Those are the three sizes that they have. Uh, thus, many of them will fit into a much smaller building footprint. They have 214 units right now on two and a half acres. So they're really small. While a large percentage of the people residing at Friendship Manor are retired, many and probably most would not be on the same schedules as people in the surrounding neighborhoods. They don't have children to take to school and they don't have to be at work at eight o'clock, most of them. I believe that a project with Friendship Manor of 214 small units integrated with the remaining 70 homes to get to 284 would result in less traffic than a project with 190 units with a random cross-section of families living in it. Um, therefore, I just would like you to reconsider get it, taking the cap off, and I would presume that HCD would actually be happier with that and that they wouldn't balk and wouldn't kick it back and it wouldn't add time, kind of like what Beth was saying about uh, her project. Um, if the request to remove the cap is denied, I'm fine with doing 190 units, but I do believe that Friendship Manor will have less impact and that the neighbors will be happier with a project with Friendship Manor from a traffic mitigation standpoint. Uh, second point is um, staff is putting a document before you this evening that restricts the building at Kenwood Village, uh, the building area to 6.33 acres. The 6.33, well, they talked about how they arrived at it. Um, I am assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that if I have to build 190 units on 6.33, which is only 63% of the total site, that I'm gonna have to go taller instead of wider. And that's not what I would wanna do. I wanna keep it low 
is so I can spread it out and I can make it low, you know, more compatible with the surrounding neighborhood. That's always been my goal, just like in the original uh, documents that I generated 10 years ago. I'm hoping there's some other way to skin that cat. Kasdan had introduced this concept of 22 to 24 units per acre. Um, is there some other way to honor that maximum without having to put a cap on the on the building coverage? Um, uh, I do need you to wrap up because yep. we've already given seated time. Yep. Uh, one sentence: um, if if we if we build twenty units per acre, let's say, can we use the whole nine point eight five? I do really need you to wrap up. Sorry, we, we've already had additional seated time. Uh, can let's go to the next public comment. I have no more speaker slips for this item. If there's any members via Zoom that wish to speak, can you please raise your hands now? So uh, j just to clarify, so we uh, did allow for Mr. Elker to have uh, two additional allocations of time because of the seated time from other individuals. If any other individuals tonight do want to cede their time uh, to Ms. Reed, we would be able to do that, but you, you would need to have that seated time. Otherwise, I, we do will have another public comment period for B3, and you'll be able to speak then. Um, so we'll give you another three minutes then. You can definitely speak again when we get to B3. Um, can you uh, check and see if there's anybody on Zoom? I have no hands raised. Okay. Is there anybody else in the room that wants to speak on B2 that has not spoken yet? Okay. Um, with that, we'll go ahead and close out the public comment for B2. We're going to start with questions from the Planning Commission. Uh, can you come to the, um, can you say your name and um, state that you would like to cede your time? Okay, and can you come to the clerk and fill out a speaker slip indicating that? Ms. Reed, go ahead and come forward. And this will be, uh, that, and that'll be a last public comment for this one. I hope so. I, I wasn't going to speak again, but I'm not going to allow the lies that you just told to pass. I don't want you to believe me or him. I want you to believe the fire marshal I sent in to you guys, and you should have this, a statement from the fire marshal that uh, there was a fire in 2013. Uh, he worked it. There were pictures in the newspaper of the weeds that were taller than the fire people. The person, the fire department told me that the people come and uh, hide and smoke weed in the tall uh, weeds, and that wouldn't happen if the weeds weren't tall and they could hide. So yes, it is partly his responsibility to protect people, and I was evacuated. Um, the fire marshal, not me or him, the fire marshal stated in the letter that you should be able to read that in 2019 he received a violation for not mowing his yard. He also admitted to at least one or two other fires that were started in that yard. I never, also, I never said that the people would be in wheelchairs. I used a direct quote from Mr. Alker uh, that said that the people would have less mobility. They would be more immobile. That is the word I used, and it's a direct quote from Mr. Alker. So if he doesn't like what I have said, then he shouldn't have put it in his own letter. This just goes to show you what kind of person he is. I'm sorry. Um, but if you read the fire marshal's report, then um, you should be able to take that person as a credible, honest person. Um, 
in terms of not contacting him, I have submitted to you guys emails from back in like 2016 asking him to mow the yard um, and asking him to, or telling him there was garbage on the yard and there were issues with the yard. So the idea that I never said anything to him is garbage. He knew about all of this stuff. He's known about it for years, and he doesn't do anything to take care of the yard. He doesn't care that the property almost burned down. The newspaper article said that the pole next to my house, I'm sorry if you're laughing and you think that my house being done is funny, um, said that the pole next to my house caught on fire and was damaged. And I'm sorry if you all think that's funny or you want to minimize it or Mr. Alker wants to minimize it clearly. Um, but that's about it. I live in this community. I've lived in this community for many years. And I'm sorry you don't want to take me seriously or you're all laughing right now. Um, hopefully you guys don't have any fires in your property. Thank you, Ms. Reed. Do we have any other public comment for item B2? If there's any members of the public on Zoom that wish to speak, please raise your hand now. I have no hands raised. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and close public comment. It is 9 o'clock. Does anybody need a break? Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and take, let's just do about a five-minute break, give everyone a chance. Um, so we'll be back at 8.55 uh, for uh, questions and uh, deliberation of the commission. Okay, we are ready to proceed. Um, so we have completed public comment for item B2. We are now moving into questions um, from the Planning Commission. We'll take any clarifying questions you have, and then we'll close the public comment for B2 and move into discussion and deliberation. Um, so let's start with any questions on item B2. Hey, no questions. Um, so with no additional questions coming out of the public comment period, um, actually, I have one question. I know this was touched on briefly before, but just because it came up in public comment, I was wondering if um, Ms. Uh, our staff could speak, or um, if Ms. Wells could speak a little bit to the outreach to landowners and identifying the sites. I know uh, staff put in a lot of effort into working with um, the different property owners, so if you could just speak to that slightly. Thank you, Vice Chair uh, We reached out to property owners that had pending applications, um, such as Ken Elker with the, the Kenwood site, um, to discuss upzoning. So that was, we reached out those types. If, if there were past records of or past um, interactions at the counter with interest of um, residential at a site, we re reached out to those people. Uh, so we, you know, made inquiries around City Hall to see, you know, who was who was asking for um, changes to their zoning or showing interest in housing development. Because again, some of it was, you know, quiet because they couldn't get water, so they they weren't asking. So that we reached out when we heard that there were, were um, there was interest. And um, and then in one case, we had an applicant reach out, or a potential applicant reach out directly to us and, um, and asking. 
about this because they were following a housing element project. And then uh, there might be one case where the site was vacant. Oh, no, when their, app, their uh, land use uh, planner reached out to us. Again, you know, we were noticing things. People were reading about it. They knew about ARENA and the letter from HCD. And so we were, we were getting contacted by uh, property owners or their rep representatives. Thank you very much for that clarification. And then um, my understanding is tonight we are considering rezoning of the properties, the new components of the housing element or, or revisions to housing element. Um, but any numbers we come up with in terms of potentially built out the sites, that's not necessarily guaranteed that that's what's going to be built on the site. Each of these projects will be coming back for consideration. Um, as they propose a project. So at this time, we're not able to say what the project's going to look like or the exact design of it. Uh, each of the property owners would be coming back with a project proposal that would then also be considered via the public process. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, that is all my questions. Any other? Oh, uh, Commissioner Chapman. I suppose I, I do have a question after all. Um, so one of the public commenters mentioned that you know, it, it is difficult to redevelop a, um, you know, it's considered an underutilized site, um, but the state has shown a preference for that, I think partly because of, you know, the environmental and, and uh, other benefits of, of sort of that reuse of uh, existing development. Um, I see the, there is, do you, I guess my question is, do you anticipate that the potential changes to the Conditional use permit uh, for smaller mixed-use developments and the shared parking. Um, do you anticipate that that would make it easier uh, for mixed-use developments for redevelopment into mixed-use developments? Um, thank you, Commissioner Chapman. Yes, and that was the intent of those changes, and at the request of HCD um, to um, promote more mixed-use because, on you know, record on paper, we don't have the paper trail that they were looking for for mixed-use. Are there any other programs uh, to to encourage infill in that regard? Uh, there's a series of, of programs in the housing element that were already um, in the adopted housing element from January, and then there's additional ones. Okay. Um, and then one last question. Um, I think the same commenter uh, mentioned that that idea of, of, I guess, any changes, whether they're more generally more permissive towards housing or, or restrictive, that, that any changes that are more permissive towards housing would make the um, draft be just as likely to be accepted. Do you, do you agree with that assessment or no? Um, I don't know if I agree or disagree, but I can say that um, what someone might think is better for housing, HCD might not agree with. Um, like they don't um, like it when you consolidate housing in one area of a city. Mm -hmm. So you might think that's a great that's a great strategy, and they'll reject it. So that's where it's uh, risky to make changes because we worked so hard to get this letter from the state, and they were really pretty clear about the revisions. I mean, they went through each one of them, and uh, with us, and we changed some of them because of it. And yeah, so I, I th again um, share that what we might think is promoting housing, they might 
the state might not agree. Vice Chair Maynard and, and Commissioner Chapman, I would just emphasize again that whether or not HCD considers them to be acceptable, it will take us through another process with HCD, which will be time consuming. Understood, thank you. Any last questions? Okay, um, so we're gonna go ahead and close the public comment for number two and now, and close the public hearing for number two, uh, two, and now the commission can enter into deliberation and enter a motion. So we'll start with deliberation first. Uh, is there any commentary? Uh, Commissioner Fullerton first. I just, I, I feel like there's so, this is such a, a tough topic and People are very emotional about it. Um, I know it affects their day-to-day -day lives, um, but I also know how hard staff has worked on this, and I really appreciate the time and the thoughtfulness that staff has put into this. I know that what they're doing is not spur of the moment, throwing things in here just to meet a number. I mean, I know it is so important to meet that number, unfortunately, but I, I just, think we've had so many discussions about all this we've reviewed it for many 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 hours and staff I'm sure has put in a thousand times more hours than we have so I um, you know I I wish um, the state would not have these regulations I wish the state would have more um, you know they're they're enforcing some zoning changes but without giving the ability to really force the affordable housing and that's really the key what we want. We want housing, we need housing. We can't just say we're not gonna do any more housing. Um, so I feel like maybe some of the frustration is a little bit misplaced, but I think for what the city of Goleta is doing, I think everyone is doing their best to try to make this as painless as possible. So I s support this. Commissioner Miller. Yes, um, thank you. Yeah, this it really is um, a, a really thorny subject, um, and it's grand—it's a grand thorny subject, and certainly it's—it's um, it's difficult in so many respects. Um, but um, it's this is where we are. This is where we are, and um, we have to make the best of what we have. And um, I really feel like um, the staff has done a remarkable job on all the work that's in all the consideration and everything that's, that has gone into this. It's just phenomenal. Um, so uh, while this is not a perfect solution by any means, um, it's where we are and uh, the state has made these requirements and you know we are not alone we are not alone by any means and um, uh, it, it's it's really it's it's been tough all over the state of California um, and it's maybe not going to get much easier you know it's just again where we are and there's so many um, um, considerations and conflicts and um, just things we need to do to change our life here in California. Um, 
So I think that I am supporting the recommendation um, uh, tonight for, to, to get this done because I just feel like if we delay it anymore uh, with any changes that may or not be acceptable to the state, uh, we're just we're just you know throwing that ball down the down the hill and and um, we may never get it back and you know we're going to lose valuable time and then we're really really in uh, a deep state of trouble is in my mind so it's it's important that we um, in my mind it's important that we support this tonight and then we deal with all the thorny things as they come to us on the individual projects because certainly um, you know so many people the public has has voiced um, so many problems and concerns that you have and we appreciate that and um, we're listening um, but for tonight, I just don't think that we have any other choice other than to do this and that we work, again, work out the issues and the thorns and the concerns more as each project comes forward to us. So that's it. Thank you. Commissioner Chapman. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to make sure to remind uh, everyone and, and uh, that the reason for this and the reason for RENA is that because California has a long going housing crisis, um, the state has decided that, that it's a supply and demand issue and that there's been an undersupply for years um, and that every city has to, to, and region has to do their share to, to try and reverse that. Um, I just want to highlight the severity of this crisis um, and how it's affecting people every day um, and that we're doing what we can to try and help and try and help make alleviate that crisis. Um, the out-of-control housing costs are associated with increases in, in homelessness. Um, there are health outcomes uh, associated with it. There are um, issues with domestic violence, um, with the people not able to access housing. Um, there's issues of overcrowding and, and the issues that can that can come with that. Um, and so that is sort of the trade-off of everything we're considering, all of these difficulties, all of these challenges. The other side of that is alleviating a really desperate crisis here in California and doing our part as a city. And I think that a lot of the programs um, in this housing element are really good ideas, and I'm really impressed with staff, and I really look forward to implementing a lot of these programs. Uh, I look forward to see what, what staff comes up with in order to implement these programs. Um, they've done a lot of work, and it's going to be a lot of work, but we're doing the right thing, not only uh, for according to our, our general plan and our principles as a city, but, but ethically, we're, we're doing the right thing. Um, and uh, I want to say that uh, I appreciate the um, uh, height crease in uh, Old Town. I, I think that that really well aligns with the vision for Old Town of being um, the, the heart of our city, our downtown, um, with you know the the apartments over shops and, and things like you would associate with it with the downtown. And I think that makes sense. It, um, 
I've kind of looked into it, and that that yeah, it's hard to make a say a three-story building, especially over commercial, uh, with with the, with the previous heights. And so I think that um, that in addition with the design standards we have, um, can make an even more beautiful old town. And uh, that's all. Thank you. I want to start my comments by actually thanking everybody who's in the room tonight and all our public commenters. I know this is a very difficult topic, um, and it's so important that we hear from our community and from each of the neighborhoods about what these impacts are. Um, though I know we have significant time pressures from the state and with the requirements that are coming up with the housing element, this is a public meeting and this is a public process and it is our responsibility and our duty to hear from you all and to think carefully about what's being presented to us tonight. Um, and I, I go into my consideration of tonight um, with all of the feedback from the community and wanting to make sure that we are very clear going into this that uh, this should not be a done deal going into this meeting. This meeting is to hear from you, to consider what you've shared with us, to consider what staff has shared with us, and to make decisions based on that. Um, the deadlines are important, but your feedback is just as important, and I, I hope that you all um, feel that from us tonight. I also wanna thank the staff because you've put incredible amount of work into this housing element and into identifying these rezonings, working with landowners, really understanding the feasibility of each of these sites, and really working with both the City Council and the Planning Commission to make sure to, to integrate everything from our joint planning sessions in the summer, um, to uh, think about all of the guidance and feedback that we've um, you've provided us. Um, with that, um, I feel like you've gotten most of it. I think a lot of the, rec um, the new changes with the housing element, um, I think were right-sized. Um, I think you had a really nice balance between some things that you identified very clearly that we were able to move forward with and, and really lock down tonight, and other areas um, such as the open space reduction where you've identified that we need to continue having some public conversations to identify exactly what those amounts are gonna be. Um, and so I think you've done a really nice job with balancing those out. Um, we are a community uh, that has really felt a lot of the pains of development, um, and that's felt in every part of the community, and I wanna acknowledge hearing that from all of the different neighborhoods, um, in, both in our joint meetings and in tonight. Um, and I know that there will be impacts from development and from growth um, and those will be challenges for our community that we have to weigh heavily. Um, that said, I do think that we've hit some good balances in terms of the uh, right number of units for each of the sites, and I think the sites were well chosen. Um, my remaining concern and reservation um, is about um, this approach that we have taken with Kenwood Villages where I believe the intent was to get to 190, which would have put us at residential medium density. Uh, 20 units across 9.84 acres would have been 190. That would have been residential medium density. But we wanted the low income housing. We wanted to be able to count that property towards our arena requirements for low income housing and towards the shortfall that we had in terms of meeting the housing element. And so, 
we really work to try to find a way to make it our age, um, but stick with essentially what was our original goal of RM. Um, I think that's an awkward planning solution, and I'm concerned about that setting a precedent for how we approach planning on a project. Um, we're sort of, we're kind of using RMH, but we're kind of doing this cap, and it, it feels um, like we may be lead it, being led too much by the state on this one. I worry that we're not um, thinking through good planning. I think Mr. Elker in one of his comments said, you know, I could make a more beautiful project that designed better with the community that was at lower heights that spread the development across the property if you could use your full 9.84 acres instead of just 6.33 acres and then building up in just that one spot. Um, I worry that this approach is not giving us the best planning outcome, um, even though it's giving us the same number of units we were aiming for. So I have that reservation, um, but I, I do wanna honor that a lot of what is in this is very, very good. Um, I wanna open up to the Planning Commission if there's any responses or additional back and forth that folks, uh, additional deliberation that folks might wanna have before we go into motion now that we've heard from each of the commissioners. Uh, Commissioner Chapman. Thank you. Uh, I, I would like to make a, a couple of responses. Um, I'd like to uh, respond to Commissioner Miller um, and, and uh, respectfully push back on the notion that we have no choice um, to, to make changes. Um, we do have a choice. It, the choice would have a very high cost um, if we were to make changes. But I think if we thought we were really messing up here, we, we would consider that trade-off and it was worth the cost. Um, but I, I don't think that's, I don't think we're, we're, we're messing up. I, I, think, I think we're making good sense and it's, any changes would not be worth the cost at this point, uh, sort of resetting the clock as far as uh, approval of the housing element. Um, and then I would also like to uh, agree uh, with Vice Chair Maynard about the uh, Kenwood Village. Um, I do think it's uh, anything that kind of makes our zoning code harder to understand, you know, may present some difficulties and, and we're going to basically have a specific call out for a specific site and that could get untenable um, to do. Uh, in the future, um, and I definitely would be hesitant to do another sort of very site-specific zoning, you know, um, Title 17, you know, line that, that could that could grow out of control. Um, the I want to say sort of the silver lining to um, having the RH on a reduced acreage is it does potentially reduce the footprint um, on that property of the. Um, development, which, you know, is a benefit of a higher density development. Um, things are taller, but with the same number of houses, you know, the, um, there is more open space. And so, so that is, I think, a silver lining to that. That's all. Thank you. Any additional deliberation from the commission? And, uh, Vice Chair, as far as the motion, on the last item, there were three resolutions. So there were mm -hmm. three motions and three votes procedurally mm -hmm. on this because there's one resolution and then, um, uh, finding the, the commissions asked to make item B on the agenda, uh, those can all be part of one motion okay, and one vote. I appreciate the clarification, thank you. Um, I am open to hearing a motion. Would anybody like to stab at a motion? Okay, uh, Commissioner Miller. 
So I would like to make a motion that we adopt resolution number 23 entitled a resolution of the Planning Commission of the City of Goleta, California, recommending to the City Council adoption of the housing element 2023 to 2031 amendments to the general plan slash coastal plan use plan case number 21-002-GPA and to make a determination that because a CEQA addendum was considered as part of a separate action, no further environmental review is required for resolution number 23, pursuant to Public Resources Code section 21166 and state CEQA guidelines section 15162. Can I hear a second? I'll second that. Okay. Um, can uh, Clerk Collier, can you take us in a roll call vote of the Planning Commission? Commissioner Chapman? Aye. Commissioner Fullerton? Aye. Commissioner Miller? Aye. Vice Chair Maynard? I'm actually going to abstain um, as a way to signal to the City Council um, my reservation, but also to defer to the City Council um, to, to determine if this was the outcome that they had intended with the 190 cap. Um, so I will abstain. Uh, with that, the motion passes. And we will move on to um, item number B3. Uh, Clerk Collier, can you uh, read that into the record? Item B3, general plan and Title 17 amendments to implement certain housing element 2023-2031 programs, including rezoning. And before we get too far in this, I just want to check in Commissioner Fullerton or... We're okay. Okay. Um, so we're going to go ahead and start with a presentation by staff. Ms. Wells. All right. Good evening, Chair and Commissioners and members of the public. And welcome to this continued public hearing to consider um, the implementation actions for the um, housing element 2023-2031 re um, revisions that you considered in the uh, previous hearing item. I'm at Advanced Planning Manager Ann Wells, and I'm accompanied by Peter Imhoff and Andy Newkirk, and we also have our consultant team uh, via Zoom, and that's uh, Jamie Powers and Veronica Tam. Um, just a, a brief on the background, we've been working on this project for a couple of years. We, um, through a long process, adopted our housing element 2023-2031 in January, and then um, since then, we received another comment letter from HCD. That's why we have these revisions, and that is um, a big reason why we need to rezone was because of the comments from HCD. And um, um, if we take these actions, as stated in the, the previous hearing items, um, to make the amendments to the general plan and to Title 17 tonight, then... Um, it's setting us up for certification after we adopt our housing element because of that um, letter that we recently received from the state um, of basically approving our housing element revisions with a draft and compliance letter. Um, so um, this hearing tonight, uh, B3, is implementing the housing element revisions that we talked about at the other, um, at the other hearing, the one just before this. So these, these items are not unfamiliar. Um, 
And there, we have to implement these items because that was the expectation from the state. So the timeline in the housing element revisions were very specific um, such that that will enable us to get um, that, that certification letter. Um, I'll flag we've received 12 written public comments at the time of, before the hearing and uh, most of the commenters were expressing concern with the rezoning and then related impacts to the community and then another letter expressed confusion about the Kenwood site and um, uh, we'll talk about Kenwood in the presentation and then another letter was from a state agency that was acknowledging receipt of the housing element notices and um, just a reminder that we're, we're um, logging all the public comment. They're up with the staff report online and on our housing element um, web website or web page. And um, so just jumping right into the, the presentation. The presentation format is going to be the same as the other one. Um, this presentation, questions from you, public comment, deliberation, and then action on the agenda. And we'll be covering um, the... Um, topics uh, from the um, the housing element revisions that require um, revisions to the general plan. So that's and that's in via resolution. So there's there's a bunch of there's one resolution in your staff report from the planning commission to the city council, uh, but there's a bunch of exhibits. And so there's exhibits related to actions necessary to amend the general plan, and then there's also ordinances attached to revise Title 17. And there's more than one ordinance. Um, just as we heard previously on the, the first hearing item, that Kellogg uh, rezoning, et cetera, was taken um, out of, in, you know, wasn't included in this package because of a planning commission recusal. We're preparing for city council recusals that we're aware of. So there's ordinance breaking out the um, Kenwood and the Dara Road specifically, and then um, kind of everything um, else in the, the last ordinance. And we will ask you to um, make a, a change, so an add to your um, motion at the end. We'll, we'll remind you of that, too. We'll ask you to delete Section 4C of Exhibit F because it's a repeat of something from um, uh, a different a different. Ordinance, so we we didn't want to duplicate things, and then because that would then create a conflict for one of the commissioners. This is a cleanup item, so we'll we'll catch that uh, then. Um, and then we will go into the content. So that the, the um, HE two point one A, the residential development capacity to, to accommodate Rena. We've been talking about that all night. I feel like is the other two hearing items. But now that those have been included via your recommendation in the housing element, um, we now would then have to proceed with making land use and zoning changes. Uh, so that's that's what that is for. So it's listed by site and we'll we make those those changes and in um in the general plan and, and Title 17. And then really the, the increased density in community commercials from 12 units per acre to 20 units per acre is another um, change that we have to make in order to count our, our um, site inventory at that density. And then um, we're also required to 
make the changes necessary to implement HE 2.1B, which is the by right uh, approval for the, the reuse sites. And um, again, the, those are all in the, the amendments that we just approved. And those are also required by government code. So if you look at the revisions, you'll see that, that, that they cite the government code. So we just have to import it into our, our zoning. And then HE 2.1E allowed density. So we, we talked about that to allow greater densities in the development plans. So we'll, um, we'll make those changes too in, in the zoning. Um, and that, that last one was to, to support that maximum allowed residential density. Um, that, the, that the state was asking us to do. And so uh, more specifically in the, in the land use um, designation and the, the, the changes in the land use element that we have to make, again, that's in a separate resolution, um, not to be confused with the zoning amendments. But first we have to change the, the general plan. And so we have to update Table 2-1 and LU 2.7 to clarify the minimum density for those resource sites at 20 units per acre. Um, and then we have to add in to LU 2.7 that there's a cap on the development at the Kenwood site of 190 units. And then we also have to make changes to Table 2-2 and LU 3.3 on the community commercial density that I had just talked about, uh, 12 to 20 units per acre. So there's a lot of little um, like little items to make sure that things are, are lining up between the general plan, the housing element, and zoning. So then the um, LU 4.2, we're gonna um, we have some clarification about the Yardy site overlay. Um, that's that's business park that um, will have an allowance for that business park to remain uh, uh, legal and um, or conforming rather. And, and they can still come in with an application at um, high-density residential. And then we have to change figure 2-1. So that's just changing the map so that we, the rezones that were listed out that are in that, in that um, reso and ordinances can, or actually that was in a reso, um, we actually will just change figure 2-1. We have a graphic of that. And then we also have to change the, the open space element because in that figure uh, 3-5, there's a... Um, agriculture designation for Kenwood, so that we have to lift that um, as a companion amendment to uh, the land use designation change. And we can look at them at the, I think the maps are next, yeah. So this is what the land use plan map would look like. You, you're not gonna see the, the actual changes, <laughs> but um, they're here. And then, the, and then the next map is the open space element map. And you won't see the Kenwood parcel on this slide because um, that's, it's, it's removed. And then we have a series of uh, Title 17 amendments. Oh, yeah, sorry. That, um, that, so now we're, we're, you're gonna like hear this kind of repeat theme, right? Because we, we have to change the general plan. Now we change the zoning. So the RH district standards to minimum 20 units per acre. Community commercial density increase from 12 to 20 units per acre. Um, then we're adding in and the detail on the overlay district for the Yardy site that I had just described. So it's, we're, we're carrying them forward into zoning. And then we have to change the zoning map. Just like we changed the general plan, land use plan map, we have to change the zoning map so that they line up. Um, and I, I'll flag that 449 and 469 Kellogg Way was already decided upon 
So you won't see that in like the detail in, in this packet, but because the actions were already taken. And, um, and, the, and the zoning overlay district map. That will include the new overlay for the Yardie site on Fairview and Hollister. And then we have the zoning map, and then we have the overlay district. And if you look really carefully, you can see the red boundary um, over at Fairview and Hollister and in that area, and that's the, the overlay for the Yardie site. So it's very clearly depicted where that overlay is applied. And then a little bit more detail on some of the items we talked about at the last hearing to implement um, the changes that are needed for ministerial processing and allowed densities in HE 2.1 B and E. And so we, we have, I think we talked about the objective design standards and, um, and processing for the sites rezoned to accommodate the lower income arena uh, where, there's, where certain uh, factors are met. So that's now would now be embedded into the zoning. And then similar adjustments um, to the development plans that would um, go above the maximum um, allowed density. And that's that's really it. We're just taking the, the, the housing element revisions across the finish line. And um, and it's you know, again, broken up with a lot of exhibits to one planning commission resolution. And that's to avoid, um, we're setting it up for the city council so that we can uh, allow for recusals uh, with that project for that hearing. And that concludes staff presentation. We're available for questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ms. Wells. I'll, I'll take planning commission questions. Okay, Commissioner Chapman. Um, my question is, is uh, what all, with, with the proposed changes, what all would the objective standards uh, design standards apply to now. Um, Commissioner Chapman, I want to pull up Chapter 1744 to be sure, but um, there are certain categories under state law um, where ministerial objective review is required. So um, in that applicability, there are listed out certain cases in which we know, and then there's a catch-all for and where else required under state law. Um, so technically this would have been included in that, but we wanted to be clear. Um, but there's certain cases under SB 35, um, depending, you know, there's a lot of caveats to these things. Um, and certain cases under AB 2011, um, there's a, SB 6, um, uh, there's a lot of, there's several different instances under state law. Um, and then we've also, um, it's not included, I don't believe in this packet, but in the future, um, 100% affordable projects will then fall under that in the future um, as part of an up, you know, a 2014 zoning code amendment. Do you have additional questions, Commissioner Chapman? Yeah, I, I have a follow-up about the um, objective design standards. Um, so what is the purpose of adding that uh, to, so it's just the units that are rezoned with this um, uh, resolution are that have 20% units set aside for, for lower income, um, but it only applies to those? Uh, Commissioner Chapman, that's correct. And 
um, when we took the objective design standards forward, we did flag the potential to broaden the applicability. And at that time, that wasn't desired. Um, so we've kept it fairly limited to um, instances in state law when that objective review is required. Um, and so this, this addition that we're proposing is another one of those instances where um, that objective review is required under state law. So that's, that's where we stand at this point with the application of objective design standards. Okay. Um, and I, I guess, do you have a little more information on, as to why or why not, you know, to, to broaden that applicability? Commissioner Chapman, without kind of speaking for others, I think there's a, a support for the design review board process and that that's a venue to have local input and, and thought um, go into the design of a project. So, um, you know, objective design standards is essentially in lieu of the design review board process. And um, I think it was seen as um, something that was, you know, that process at design review board was something that was supported um, by, you know, the, the decision makers. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that have a sort of a significant difference on the um, sort of feasibility of, of those affordable units? Is that that going through that process or not affect that? Uh, Commissioner Chairman, I don't know about feasibility or not feasible, but it, I mean, it reduces the process, um, certainly. Um, there's three different tiers of design review. Um, it's discretionary, so you can you can go to the design review board with something you think is great, and they may not feel the same way, where with objective design standards, if you check the boxes, you know your design is approvable, so there is there is added certainty through that process. Um, but whether that is trips of feasibility or not, I don't think we can say. Sure. And, and Chair and Commissioners, I would just <clears throat> remind you that the objective design standards went through a long separate process that um, came to you and were adopted. And so fundamentally, of course, it's designed to allow us to ex exercise um, design control over projects even where we don't have discretion. And it, it's really a remarkable document and worth studying because design is something that we uh, assume can't be turned into a formula. But to the degree that we can um, make kind of consistent statements about the things that we like to see in buildings, these standards do that and they've been held up as, a, as an example by other jurisdictions, including City of Santa Barbara, that look to them um, as an example uh, on how to structure their own objective design standards. So um, they're, they're really, um, I think they're very well done, and, and they will help us in the circumstances that uh, Mr. Newkirk outlined where, we, where state law rests discretion from us over the design of projects. Thank you for that additional background. That's all my questions. Commissioner Fullerton, do you have any questions? Commissioner Miller, do you have any questions? Okay. Um, we will move into public comment. Uh, we do want to welcome anybody that wants to speak on B3. Even if you did speak on B1 or 2, you may come and speak again. Just make sure you submit another speaker slip. Um, uh, Claire Collier, do we have any speaker slips? I do have five speaker slips. Okay, let's go. I'm gonna start with Ken Elker, followed by Michelle Owen, and then Beth Collins. Mr. Elker does not wish to speak, uh, so that leads us to Michelle Owen, followed by Beth Collins, and then April Reed. Okay. Is Beth Collins still here? Okay, you're up followed by April Reed and then Paula Hammer. 
Beth Collins from Brownstein. I'm here again. Uh, I've watched the city struggle through this process and pile on more density than has ever been approved in this community onto some sites while ignoring a viable vacant site with a willing owner, my client owns it, uh, the Shelby property. And to clarify your question, um, Commissioner Chapman, the state prefers vacant sites in the inventory. And that's because those vacant sites don't face the same barriers of redevelopment that I was uh, detailing earlier. So that's why Shelby's a real opportunity for the city. And my hope is that the city will realize its mistake before it's too late. Uh, the housing element would be more defensible if it identified more parcels for housing, especially a vacant parcel like Shelby. And the city can do this now in this process. There's no reason to get honestly, to get cute with sites like Kenwood um, in lieu of good planning, uh, you have time before February 15th. Plus, remember, HCD signing off isn't the end of the story. Someone can still litigate the housing elements compliance. Beverly Hills, for example, I, I attached to my letter, just lost a case because it had an inadequate site inventory. Plus, the entire point of this process is to meet your RENA numbers, and I don't believe you will at this point, given the sites in your housing inventory and how difficult, frankly, that it is to develop here in Goleta. Shelby's a great option to help the city. It's vested against Measure G. It's been in the process for years. Shelby also can proceed using a builder's remedy and plans to do so. Um, that can all be avoided and the city could better utilize the Shelby site if the city proceeded under option A or B in the settlement that was attached to the letter that I shared with you. Option A would actually help you and the city in this housing element process. I laid out the way that the city could utilize uh, this site. The property is 12 acres, it hasn't been farmed for decades, and it can't be farmed because of Glen Annie and the runoff. There are no prime or protected soils. Um, my client brought, bought the property back in the 70s and it was zoned residential when he bought it. Uh, it has a 56 unit single family home project that's been pending for years and he's willing to do more density, more affordability uh, if the city would work with him. Given the housing crisis and the other struggles we've seen in this process, Galita should not pass up on this opportunity to develop a 12-acre vacant site more uh, with more housing that is honestly very seriously needed. Thank you. Next public comment. And thank you very much for your public comment, Ms. Collins. Next, we have April Reed followed by Paula Hammer. A little nervous talking before Ken Elko or anybody he's working with because of all of the lies from before and I won't be able to respond to them. But anyway, um, I could keep going. Um, Mr. Elko said there was no letter signed. Um, Councilmember Kazan, I have an email from him saying that all the property owners were supposed to sign a letter required by HCD. I would like, I've been trying to get clarification on this for a long time. I would like somebody to have the courtesy to let me know whether these letters were required or not. 
there was something in the housing element, I don't remember what it was, that said that there were letters required also, in addition to what Councilman Cowson said. Um, I would like a response, please. It's enough for you today, but you know, please clarify. Uh, and I, I have the email from Councilman Cowson. Uh, Councilman Karaoke stated to me after the last year, the third hearing, that there were, quote, this is his quote, rolled out plans that Mr. Alker presented to him. I don't know what that means. I don't know what the di discrepancy is, but that is what I was told. So I can only go by what I was told. Regarding the letter from the fire marshal, um, I can send it to you. I have it. It's from the fire marshal. Um, and so were clear, Officer uh, Chief Tran, who I did speak to, um, he was not on the job in 2013 when the fire occurred. Uh, he didn't know about it until I told him about it. Um, and he was new at the job. The fire marshal actually worked the fire in 2013 that almost burnt down my house. And he's the one who said, uh, who talked about um, that there was a violation in 2019 and other issues. I will be happy to send you all the stuff from other people, not me. I'm not just making it up. And I'd be happy to send a copy to, to Mr. Alker too. I have his email address that he gave me years ago. Um, if he has the guts, I will be happy to send him all of this documentation. Um, but I don't know if he does because he keeps making up lies about me. Um, the property owner's own letter, you should have all of this, uh, says that the, the um, people are, quote, immobile. That's the word I use. It's a direct quote from Mr. Alker. I never made up anything about wheelchairs or anything else. Uh, regarding a problem with the number of units, if there is a problem, then just lower the number of units. Make it medium density. And regarding parking, parking is a disaster. Um, there's no parking on three, three, air three uh, different areas. There's only parking on Tuolumne. Baker Lane is a private street. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Ms. Reed, we'll go on to the next public speaker. Next up is Paula Hammer. All right, uh, Ms. Hammer. Good evening, <laughs> uh, Planning Commission and City staff. I've heard a lot of different things, but I haven't heard from the community and how they feel about this as far as being in need of housing. And so I'd like to address that and share a little bit. Um, I've been following the Kenwood Village project more closely when I discovered in July of this year that it was being considered for rezoning to accommodate the housing shortage we have. And I was really excited at the possibility of seeing high density opportunity there through rezoning the nearly 10 acre parcel at Kenwood Village and that it included lower income housing for the workforce here in Goleta. The opportunity that it brings to people like me who grew up near Kenwood Village is beyond appreciation. I went to Brandon Elementary School, Goleta Valley Junior High, and I graduated from Dos Pueblos High School, but I have never had the opportunity to afford a home here. As a preschool educator, it is not possible in the current market the way it is, nor has it ever been possible 
on my limited income to own a home here, even though my job is very valuable to the community. I became aware of the housing element discussions and that brought hope not only to me, but to anyone with my income limitations. The increased rents have forced me to downsize to minimal living quarters to be able to live and work here as it has many native Goleta residents. Others in my field are, who are in their 30s and 40s still live at home with their parents who bought here when housing was affordable in the 60s and 70s. And they also could benefit greatly from this rezoning and establish their families in their own homes. I know personally that Ken has always wanted to use this acreage to create affordable housing for his employees. And with the possibility of high density, he will be helping many more people live closer to their jobs and um, in an actual home environment of their own and not to have to rent space in someone's converted garage to stay local, especially with the cost of travel for those who can't find a place to rent here locally and uh, never mind the possibility of home ownership in Goleta. I was also pleased to hear that Mr. Alker was open to the idea of senior housing as well because that tells me that he cares about the community. He's not just pushing, you know, he just wants to work with the, with the community. And uh, just a little side note, I have personally been out on that field and that acreage and removed homeless encampment mattresses and cleaned up the area, so. If you could go ahead and wrap up. We're at the thank end you, of time. that's good, I'm good. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do we have an, uh, thank you so much for your public comment. Uh, can we go on to the next public commenter? I have no more public speaker slips. If there's anyone joining us via Zoom that wishes to speak, please raise your hand at this time. I have no hands raised. I'm not seeing any additional public comment. We'll go ahead and take questions from the Planning Commission. I see no questions from the Planning Commission. We will go ahead and close the public hearing um, for item B3. We will now move into deliberation of the Planning Commission. Would any Planning Commissioners like to start us off in deliberation? Commissioner Miller, you look like you're leaning in. <laughs> okay, uh, Commissioner Fullerton. Yes, thank you. So I think I just don't have any open questions. I think all these things align to what we agreed to do in the last um, hearing. So I support this. Commissioner Chapman. Yeah, I, I just wanted to respond to all of the, the concerns about um, street safety. Um, just, you know, I think that were mostly from earlier comments, but but it's something that, you know, that, that has to do with our, our zoning vote here. Um, I just want to say that I think that um, those concerns are valid, you know, and that there have been deaths on our, on our roads, and I think the answer to that is that, that I hope that the city continues to do more to improve conditions. I hope that they do more to, to slow speeds in dangerous areas. I hope they do more to, to give alternatives to, to driving that can hopefully reduce traffic in residential neighborhoods. 
Um, you know, there's there's quite a need for a pedestrian and bike connection from uh, El Encanto uh, neighborhood to a lot of the commercial opportunities to the south. Um, I see too many 16-year-olds riding e-bikes over Stork and get very nervous. Um, so I don't think the answer is to not um, provide the housing that we need, um, and and that won't not not doing so won't fix any dangerous conditions. Um, and I certainly hope that that those dangerous conditions don't remain the status quo. Thank you, Commissioner Miller. Uh, I support the resolution. Um, it kind of goes hand in hand with um, the housing element, and uh, we've already approved that. So it makes sense to uh, go ahead with this. And um, I just wanted to also echo what uh, Commissioner Chapman said about safety and um, traffic and everything. I mean, it, it's definitely a problem. But we, um, we're hopeful that um, the infrastructure, the transportation infrastructure in the city will improve um, and that part of the housing element or, or, or the, the fact that the housing element does exist or will exist and start being um, planned and processed and whatnot, that um, that will, um, I don't know if the word is force, but that will <laughs> um, hopefully um, allow the city to, um, to keep up with that and to add some more uh, infrastructure as far as sidewalks, bike lanes, um, as, you, as Commissioner Chapman said, uh, other forms of transportation. Um, so um, we're, as, as our housing um, stock grows, our infrastructure uh, will also have to grow with it in order for any of this to be successful. So that is, um, that is hopefully what will, uh, that, every th that it will work hand in hand together. Thank you. Uh, B3, item B3, which we're discussing now, um, seems in close alignment with B2 and what we discussed there. Um, I think staff has done a very um, thoughtful and diligent job in aligning um, what we had agreed on in B2 with all of the other elements of our planning documents. Um, and I really appreciate all the hard work that's been put in to making sure that um, all of our different um, processes are um, matching up to each other. So thank you for that hard work. Um, with that consistency, I, I do believe that uh, this is something that we should support tonight. Is there any other deliberation from the commission? I'm going to test a motion because staff has done a lovely job of highlighting some of the things we needed uh, to make sure to include in the motion tonight. So I'll go ahead and start with the motion today. Um, we would like to adopt a resolution, or I propose to adopt a resolution number 23 entitled A Resolution of the Planning Commission of the City of Goleta, California, recommending to the City Council adoption of amendments to the general plan on Title 17 of the Goleta Municipal Code 
to implement housing element 2023 to 2031 subprograms HE 2.1 A, B, and E, case numbers 21 0002 GPA and 23 0004-ORD with the deletion of section 4C in Exhibit F on big page 49 of the packet for this public hearing. I would also like to make a include in this motion a determination that because the CEQA addendum was considered as part of a separate action, no further environmental re review is required for resolution number 23 pursuant to Public Resources Code Section 21166 and State CEQA Guidelines Section 15162. May I get a second? I'll second. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Fullerton. Um, Clerk Collier, can you take us in a roll call vote of the Planning Commission? Commissioner Chapman? Aye. Commissioner Fullerton? Aye. Commissioner Miller? Aye. Vice Chair Maynard? Aye. With that, um, the resolution passes unanimously amongst the commissioners that are here tonight. Um, and with that, we will move forward towards planning director comments. Uh, director Imhoff, do you have any comments for us uh, tonight? Thank you, Vice Chair Maynard. I do not. Um, I gave an update on Monday evening, and I have nothing to add to that report. Wonderful. Are there any additional commissioners from Planning Commission? Okay. I will take a motion for adjournment. I'll second. Uh, no, I, I need a motion first. Oh, uh, a motion to adjourn. I'll second. Okay, we have a motion from Commissioner Chapman, a second from Commissioner Fullerton. Uh, Clerk Collier, can you take us in a roll call vote of adjournment? Commissioner Chapman? Aye. Commissioner Fullerton? Aye. Commissioner Miller? Aye. Vice Chair Maynard? Aye. We are now adjourned.